0: It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we whaler men undergo and we don't give a damn when the gale
1: is done how hard the winds did blow cause we're homeward
0: bound from the arctic around with a good ship taut and free And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the
1: girls of Old Maui. Rolling down to Old Maui, me boys, rolling down to Old Maui.
2: We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground,
1: rolling down to Old
0: Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Audio Reckoning. I'm Mark. I'm Ben. I can't believe you already made yourself annoying within the first 2 seconds of our recording.
2: I made myself indispensable. Anyways, today we actually have some guests, which is really great. Yes. Uh,
0: why don't you
3: introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, I'm I'm Danny and uh I experienced the Moby Dick musical.
4: I'm Clay and <sighs> I did as well unknowingly. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, so uh,
0: I got today along. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> today we're talking about uh, the 2019 musical uh, *Moby Dick: A Musical Reckoning*, uh, which was put on at the ART. Uh, what is that? American Repertory American, Theater. yeah, American Repertory yep, yep. Theater. Um, in 2019, uh, it was written by Dave Malloy and directed by Rebecca Shavkin and or uh, Rachel, Rachel Shavkin. Yeah. Rachel Shavkin. Yep. Um, And then there's you know a whole cast. I'm not going to read the whole cast list, but we yep, made. Yep. Mention the actors as they come up. And it seems like it was a fucking wild experience.
2: Yeah, we, Mark and I, have been able to uh, get, via Clay's help, uh, a chance to listen to uh, this. So, But we have not seen it. So we felt that we needed uh, experts. Can I call
3: you guys experts?
2: <laughs> Definitely.
3: Air quotes experts. <laughs> I Clay, mean, Clay has more hubris than I do, so... <laughs> <laughs>
2: Look... We are a pro-hubris podcast. Yeah. I love
3: that yeah. journey for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah,
2: and also, we're already an air quotes expert podcast on Moby Dick, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, Ben and I became <laughs> experts on Moby Dick by virtue of just reading it and talking about it a lot, um, and I know you two watched that musical, and I assume you talked about it a fair <laughs> bit, so.
4: Yes.
3: <sighs> there was a um, long conversation afterwards. <laughs> I like not Oh, sorry. Sorry,
2: go ahead. No, I just, I can't imagine coming out of that and not talking about it. In fact, I can't imagine talking about anything else for days, because that's what's happened since we listened to it.
3: (laughs) No, yeah, I... We, we had a little bit of a conversation, not all of it right after the show when we were in the same room as Dave Malloy, uh, <laughs> but we definitely had a long conversation afterwards. And I, I remember it continuing for a couple of days before then, just like a little bit, just like, wow, we really watched that, didn't we? <laughs> so, yeah, that's uh, that leads into some kind of interesting
0: context, which is that not only did you two see this show, but you actually saw the premiere.
3: yes. <laughs> Uh, so my so I was dating someone who worked at ART, and she was like, "Hey, I have tickets. Do you want to see this musical?" And I was like, "Sure." And it's like, "Yeah, well, I'm going to be working, but you can bring a friend." And I was like, "Hey, Clay, uh, <laughs> want to go see a musical?" And he was like, "Okay." And I I kind of I kind of forgot to tell him that it was the premiere, mostly because I also forgot that it was the premiere. Um, and so. <laughs> They first right.
4: offers us our press passes, and we're like, "Oh no, we're just some <laughs> some dumbasses here. We're just we're we have just no credentials." Sleds.
0: So, so <sighs> we're just curious about what this whaling thing is. Oh, oh wow!
4: I've been oh, looking boy. for a change of pace. Uh, is is this uh, going to have any opinions on it as a career? Maybe.
0: Oh my god! Yeah, you know, I've I've heard that just like. uh, Uh, Young fellows throughout history feel this uh, strange attraction to the water. we had a slight recording hiccup uh anyway uh just get right back into it um we were kind of talking about how the two of you came to see this show um so like what uh what are your like respective backgrounds with like musical theater
3: uh yeah well i mean i i feel like my my background isn't unique in this but i did a lot of musical theater in like since middle school and did it all the way through high school and then in high school, um, well, one of my high schools. I went to like three. Mm. The director, um, he was doing West Side Story, and uh, so I was playing Maria. And he was like, "Hey, my theater company, you know, outside of the school, is doing um, Spring Awakening, and we were looking for someone to play Vendla. Do you want to audition?" I was like, "Hell yeah!" So then that's how I kind of end, ended up doing um, a little bit of professional, quote unquote, musical theater. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I I did a little. It was like very small, and I say only professional in quotes because we weren't paid very much. Right, but, but yeah, I I was doing a lot of stuff with that theater company, and they're really good. They're like they've won awards in Mexico, so check them. It's a uh, in in Spanish it's Icaro Teatro, so it's like Icarus Theater, nice. In, nice. in Mexico. I recommend all of you guys check them out. They are very very talented people. Sounds like also a pro
2: hubris um, production. <laughs>
3: Exactly. They they're very much all about that. I think it's all. Ab- that's what theater is really. It's just a representation of hubris. Fantastic. So uh, yeah. So that, that's that's what I was doing. So I've done a lot of musical theater, and uh, I've watched some. I've listened to some cast recordings of other stuff, and that's it. Yeah, <laughs> that's my musical background.
2: That is yeah. pretty fantastic background. I'll be honest.
3: Thank I you. Was,
2: I was
4: in Cats when I was seven. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's still more than me. And and I've also... uh, I did a lot of playwriting in school, both high school and college. I have written a couple musicals, both in high school I was involved. I mostly mostly wrote the books because I am not quite that musically talented. But I can rhyme, and I do know meter. (laughs) And then... I've I've studied some amount of theater in college I'm and I studied English and communications and in there I took a lot of theater that was mostly more on the English side because I don't really care for acting anymore Mm
2: -hmm.
3: cool your dark past
4: (laughs) yeah my dark past where I was in cats when I was seven
0: (laughs) (sighs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> I actually also, um, have done, like, a little bit of musical theater when I was younger. Um, it was kind of this weird thing for me where basically the schools that I went to ended up, uh, withering my interest in acting away in a sad way because, yeah, because I, like, I did a ton, I did all of the theater stuff that was available in middle school, and then at my high school, it was, like, this really small high school, um, we didn't do musicals part because in part because we were very small. And so it would, it was harder to get like, there are a lot of musicals call for like a bigger cast Mm. than some like Mm -hmm. plays do. Um, but also because like the woman who ran like the theater program at my high school didn't like musicals. And also she didn't like me. Um,
1: Oh no. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And then in college, um, so I went to Harvard for undergrad and if you are involved in like theater at Harvard it's because you are trying to be a fucking professional ass actor. Like it is very intense, it is very competitive. It's not an easy thing to be involved in if you're just sort of like, "Um, I just kind of like to sing as a hobby." <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah. <sighs> um but I'm a bit I'm I am totally like a I'm I'm definitely like a musical theater fan. Um I've also listened to quite a few cast albums. Um I was really excited for this because I was like, I think that like a huge, ambitious, weird Moby
3: Dick musical could actually be great.
0: Um
2: I was cynical from the get-go.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> and then you found out it was written by Dave Malloy. Who well, yeah. I didn't
2: know that <laughs> much of it. I think I think the recording ate our discussion of the Malloy.
0: Yeah, so yeah. we talked a little bit about who Dave Malloy is before and I I think not all of it got recorded, uh, so let's maybe, yeah, who is Dave Oloy, why is he interesting? <laughs> who is the man, the myth, the legend? Um, uh, so he's, like, right? he's, he's probably best known for Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, right? Um,
3: yeah, and, uh, cause that's, he, since we, we talked about this a little, I don't, I'm not sure if this was eaten yeah, in yeah. the recording, but, uh, so Moby Dick the musical has a lot of stuff straight up ripped from the text. Mm. It's just, you know, quotes from the book turned into song form, and he does this a lot with uh with the great comet. And um it's kind of it it becomes really awkward because then you have lines where someone is singing so and so said this and then they did this. And it's oh. it's very yeah, like they they straight up say blank says and then does this. It's it happens a lot. I feel like yeah. some of the most egregious examples are um, My House in Moscow. Um, those are two different songs. It happens a lot. I feel like sometimes it ends up having the effect of, like, someone making up a song on the spot and just saying, like, so-and-so walked over here. and like, <laughs>
0: <that>. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And it's, it, it's amazing. Just, it always sounds like that. And it's, I mean, you, I feel like it can be used to a good effect if you do it only sometimes but that's just the whole musical baby it's like, yeah
0: I, I, I think uh, we we didn't mention on this recording um great comet is uh like directly inspired by a like 70 page chunk of war and peace inspired by seems yeah.
2: incorrect when this is what we're talking about it's adapted from and yeah, by adapted get, we mean cut and adapted. pasted
0: yeah yeah, yeah. um yes. and uh this...
4: apologetically cut and pasted. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, yeah this show
0: is also yes. just like taking huge chunks from the text of moby dick um some of, some of the stuff
2: is not at all for Moby Dick as well. Like it's, there's a lot of introductions, alterations. Um, I think the thing that actively peeves me and it peeves me, uh, it humps me. It, uh, it, it, there's a line to Moby Dick. It tasks me. It tasks me. Thank you. Uh, things Moby Dick uh, is said to do to Ahab. Um. By taking sections from the book and changing which character they're referring to. Changing who is being described and considered with language that is clearly being chosen for its, like, verbal pyrotechnics. Um, uh, An example that I think is pretty egregious uh, and that involves Pip. um, (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. Is that the description of Ahab's injury that, quote, torn body and torn soul bled into one another on his voyage back from losing his leg to Moby Dick, a famous line, a really powerful line for giving a sense of what's going on with Ahab, is instead moved to Pip as as he undergoes his traumatic events, wherein his body is very much not harmed. A huge part of what's going on with Pip is that his body is unharmed, but his soul is fled. And so as a bit of metaphor, as a descriptive passage, it makes no sense for Pip where it was directly, you know, perfect for what was going on with Ahab. That change heaps me. It it really does.
0: I Yeah, so I, I think that's a... I think that our, our, our discussion of the Pip section may also have uh, gone by the wayside. Um, I'm not actually sure that we want to repeat all of that, but the important mm-hmm. thing is that there is a 30-minute long Pip section in this show, and that is a wild choice mm-hmm. compared to how much time is given to Pip in the novel. Um, and that um, that was one of the things where when Ben and I heard about it, we were like, wow, this is going to be wild. Um, I,
4: I think it's briefly worth mentioning that the Pip section is it is the... Genesis of this whole musical yes. it is yeah, the, yeah. I'm gonna it, it, I'm gonna reference book. Hamilton a couple times in this probably because <laughs> there's obvious through lines yeah but sort of it's worth thinking about how the first song in Hamilton which I I've very complicated feelings about Hamilton that will probably come out in this but I cannot deny it is good yeah. like it is yeah. a well-written musical yeah, yep. and the first song in Hamilton, the first one ever written, is very good at justifying the existence of the project. That's its whole point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and I do I actually... not think
4: that Pip justifies <laughs> the existence of this project. Oh
0: God, no, yeah, no. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> the,
2: um, there's there's efforts made to make Pip more central, so as to make the idea that you start with the ballad of Pip and go outward less obviously galaxy brained.
0: Yeah, I I think it might be worth. Okay, we mentioned Hamilton as like a, a an intertext here, yeah. <laughs> which I think is very true. Like uh, when when Ben and I were first listening through the recording that we have, I think both of us were kind of like, this is making us think a lot about Hamilton. It feels like we're trying to do like like this is Moby Dick turned into a uh, Hamilton, but. You know, neither of us is that well-versed in musical theater. Are we just doing the Boss Baby tweet? But um, <laughs> as we, like, looked into it more, and also as we, like, finished listening to the entire show, we were like, no, there's something here. Um, and the timeline of it is all very interesting also. Yes,
2: uh, I've got it written down. So that uh, that first song, which uh, is... I've. Correct me if I'm wrong, Clay. It's just Alexander Hamilton. It's like the I Am Alexander Hamilton song. Yeah. 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 That song first got put forward uh, in 2009 when uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was at, I think, the White House Poetry Evening and was expected to do a song from at-the-time-hit musical, In the Heights, uh, but instead did this Alexander Hamilton thing, and that created a huge amount of buzz. I even, I am not tuned into this stuff, and I remember being like, oh yeah, I heard about that, I think, uh, years later when Hamilton became, you know, huge. Uh, In 2014, the Pip section is performed at, uh, as a, like, jazz ensemble thing at uh, Joe's Bar.
0: Joe's Pub. Joe's Joe's Pub, Pub. sorry.
2: Um, The so-called Joe's Pub. Uh, Then (laughs) it's around 2014 that Hamilton, the musical, you know, comes on, I think it's off-Broadway in 2014, and then shortly thereafter goes on Broadway. Uh, And then, obviously, 2019, Moby Dick and Musical Reckoning uh, reaches uh, ART. So there's like, Moby Dick or Musical Reckoning is Hamilton's strange shadow (laughs) cast by the the mind of Dave Malloy.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I I, I think the influence is pretty clear. Yeah. Um, So, alright, I I think we've kind of introduced Dave Malloy a little bit, we've introduced like a little bit of the context around this musical. I feel about ready to actually start talking about the thing. Um, Does anyone else have any other kind of preamble they wanted to get out of the way?
2: Uh, I, I don't, I... I, I beg our guests to have something because I'm not ready for this. <laughs> Let's <try.
0: laughs> Oh, ben, merciless. Ben's, Ben's scared to start talking about the songs. He wants the two of you to have even more context <laughs> so he can delay it. Uh, uh, but I, I think I, it is time that we plunge uh, like fate into the lone Atlantic.
2: You have to use one of my favorite lines against me. Okay, okay.
0: So I think what we're going to do is kind of go through each song. Um, We're probably not going to necessarily talk about every single one in great detail. Um, And we're also definitely going to talk about like characters and themes and and things that are kind of broader than just one song. Um, But I think we're going to kind of structure it by going through the songs, at least at first.
1: Um,
4: I have a big question about this first song, The Sermon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to see if my read is right. I think Mm -hmm. this is original. Because it's a good song. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Well, when you say original, you mean it's not quoted from the book? It's
4: not quoted directly from the book. No,
2: it's yeah. not. It's... it's it's both original in the sense that, yeah, none of, none of this text is. It's a, It's a complete reworking of an actual scene, but the scene is one that has a really interesting history, which is that it... Sort of doesn't super stand out in the original book. It's it's meaningful, but it's early on. They go to a chapel where a Father Mapple gives a sermon on Jonah and the whale. It's very straightforward in that respect. It serves some interesting thematic purposes in the book. But in adaptations, in the 1956 uh, movie, Orson Welles played Father Mapple and delivered the <laughs> sermon. And since then, it has been a standard part of any Moby Dick adaptation, is that you give frankly, undue weight to Mapple's sermon in some form. So I can see how that created a space where uh, this actually ends up feeling a lot more original. It produ- it's it's Malloy's version of the sermon rather than being just taken out of the text.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this, this sermon is uh, definitely, um, you know, Malloy written text. And uh, it's, um, it is basically a retelling of the story of jonah which is also what the sermon in the book basically is um with you know uh i guess i would say some interpretations yes. of the biblical story um some of which are basically the same interpretations as the novel makes like the idea the idea that this that that jonah's mission was to speak truth to power which is literally said in the song speaking truth to power um I don't think the novel literally uses the phrase speak truth to power because I don't think that was, like, a common phrase in the 19th century, but I think when Ben and I talked about that sermon, we literally used that phrase, right?
2: It's possible. It's been a while.
0: Well, it's just the idea that Jonah's mission was and that the mission of a, like, sort of modern preacher is to, like, tell people, like, hard truths about, like, God and their souls. Uh, that's that's totally there. Mo- David, Dave Malloy didn't make that up. Uh... Yeah. But um But yeah, I'm I'm really curious
2: now. So you mentioned you liked this song. I, I agree. I think it's musically a lot of fun. Uh what kind of sort of stage setting is this? Uh from the perspective of people who aren't completely poisoned by the book and are like and we're coming to this fresh. What did this make you think the musical is gonna be like? I
3: well, mean, I I sort of took this as a funky little prologue and like a I I was an English major and I'm forgetting my literary devices but kind of like a is it synecdoche just like a r- representation of the whole mm. so I was like okay this song has all those funky themes that we're going to start seeing through yeah. the musical yeah yeah it sounds like you took it to be like programmatic like this is going to
0: th- mm-hmm. this is going to kind of give us some sense of what the whole thing's going to be mm. exactly and i think i oh, oh sorry go on
4: they in this i'm thinking about the staging now because the big thing here is the preacher is preaching directly to the... Father Mapple preaches to the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There isn't. If I recall correctly, there was no one else on stage.
3: Yeah, um, no, I think I, it was just like a single spotlight. It was
4: just a single on spotlight. Ishmael, if I remember correctly, was in the audience at this point.
3: Ooh! Ooh. Interesting.
4: Fascinating. Which is, th- like, which is... Gets us really early started on the... Thing that sometimes is interesting and sometimes is, hey, get in these seasickness boats. <laughs> which is, This is a this musical is full of audience participation, and I. But this is a fairly subtle bit where it is you are. I suppose is it the crew of the Pequod? Is it Ishmael? Whoever
0: you're the sees people, this sermon? Yeah,
2: yeah. You're the you're the new yeah. Bedforders. Yeah. Okay.
0: I actually think oh, that man. that is honestly, I would say that's a very. Um, neat that is a very good way of representing something that the novel actually does which is that like in the novel the sermon is a chapter and like it's contextualized with narrative like ishmael goes to a chapel and like describes the people he sees there and then after it's over he leaves the chapel and goes somewhere else so it's not like completely without sort of narrative context but it is just a a chapter that literally is a sermon. It would be totally possible to excerpt that sermon and present it as a sermon in a church. um. And so I think in the novel, it is doing the closest thing that you can in a 19th century novel to telling the reader, hey, you are now Ishmael. You are now a person in this chapel. You're hearing this sermon as though you were there. And so I think mm-hmm. to to make that... To turn that into a theatrical moment, I think is actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah.
2: And it it sounds like we're generally positive on the on the song here. It's
0: I think it's a song.
4: I have I'm yeah. gonna wait to get into this too much, but I have strong feelings about it and then the next part coming immediately afterwards. Oh,
0: I think that's a very fair thing to talk about. Um because yeah, they've both this and the next song, uh, etymology are Etymology is also very programmatic. I would say it is. Mm-hmm. Etymology is much more explicitly telling you what mm-hmm. this musical is going to be. Um, so, sh- for, do we want to? Lack... Oh, I do want to go
4: back to the Hamilton. Oh, oh. yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. Hamilton. To back to the Hamilton comparison. I my idea is that these are both doing the same role as that Alexander Hamilton song, which mm. I'll yeah. come back to a few times. But it's very much that important part of um oh what's oh, i forgot the literary term danny help me the thing i was talking to you last night about uh
3: suspension, hang of, hang disbelief, hang. suspension of disbelief willing suspension of disbelief part
4: of yes. that that people don't talk about much is you know there's all the stuff about like creating that worthy illusion and such yeah but also synology. you have to make sure your thing is worth <laughs> suspending disbelief for yes it's a very yeah, big thing no. that's a really early thing in a lot of theater and a lot of plays is making it worthwhile, and that's mm. what these are. Yeah, it's, no, it's making the why ethical should I argument. This is real.
2: The, the yes. aesthetic argument for what is worth sitting down for. What is it? Three and a half hours yeah. to absorb this uh, this musical. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that it's it's interesting because we've mentioned before the idea that. Molloy's a little bit ashamed of Moby Dick. Like, not the play, (laughs) but the book. He's a little bit, like, embarrassed to like it so much. And, yeah, these first two numbers really are making the argument that you should care about Moby Dick. You should care about this whale stuff, but not frankly, doing it very well. In this one in particular, I do want to bring up a genius uh, note that is maybe going to be a problem, which is, you know, uh, we're all in the belly of the whale, hiding in the dark from the sins that tell our tale, and apparently uh, Dave Malloy's description of the play is, this piece about looking at Moby Dick through the lens of 21st century America and looking at the failures of democracy and capitalism and white supremacy and what that has done to America, how we're on this sinking ship. And... I'm sure we'll get into this, but the the sort of glib, ah, we're going to use this, this is all about the situation you, the audience in 2019, are all in, um, that's something that's gonna be a real weird lens to look at this musical and Moby Dick through, and it's not as though you can't make Moby Dick contemporary. I've, in fact, uh, argued on previous episodes of this podcast that the 1956 Moby Dick is really like a uh, HUAC era, House and american Activities Committee era, like Red Scare. Mm-hmm. It's like the Crucible. They focus on Starbuck as an opposition to Ahab's sort of monomania and Starbuck needing to, like, stand up and oppose it. It's, like, it's about, like, some good, you know, good men opposing uh, McCarthyism. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting um... take— on this story. I, <laughs> but,
3: Fascinating. By, yeah. the this,
4: gonna, by the end of this recording, I'm going to talk about how Starbuck has a torch song, so...
0: Oh, yeah. but listen, buddy, I've already been thinking about how...
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Starbuck always goes weird places in these adaptations, because a lot of them want to make Starbuck the main character, for reasons that I think will become very clear when we're talking about Starbuck. But this is not doing that. What I'm just saying is that there are more coherent mappings of a contemporary mm-hmm. america onto moby dick than we get in this musical and this musical starts off by telling us we are all in the belly of the whale you know uh you 2019 uh, americans we are all together on the peckwad and this is going <laughs> to recur but i just think that's like the big thematic, mm-hmm. ethical aesthetic claim why should you watch this musical because it explains your life this is the yeah. most 2019 and... thing ever.
3: Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, it really is. Um, I... It's it's really. Uh, sorry. Oh, please finish. Oh no, yeah, it's very exemplary, sort of pre-pandemic everything. <laughs> but like, I yeah. guess part of sort of building off of what Clay said about you know him, or, or or you guys also said how about how Dave Malloy is very apologetic about why he wants to make a musical about this and why he likes it so much. Mm-hmm. I feel, I I feel like I've made this speech and I will eventually write this essay. Uh, I've told it to Clay. About how I feel like so much, I'm gonna sound like a boomer, but how so much media nowadays is so concerned with self awareness, yeah, and being like, oh, like I know that you know that we do this in this medium, so like winky face, we're pointing it out, but we're gonna keep doing it, and we're not gonna significantly change anything about how you think about theater. We're just gonna say that we do this, Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I feel like Dave Malloy definitely falls into that sphere, like going back to that sort of. One of the lines from the prologue of Great Comet where uh, the chorus kind of sings, uh, yeah, this is based on a complicated Russian novel. Everybody's got nine different names. You have to study up to pay attention. And it's that idea of like, oh, we're making this palatable to you by pointing out like, oh, we know what you think. And we're not like those other people telling you to care about old Russian novels. And it's it's honestly we're hip and cool. Hello, fellow kids. God. Hello, fellow teens. teens. Yeah. Uh,
2: finding out that Dave Malloy is 46 <laughs> rather than, like, 30 gives me a headache.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I definitely agree that that kind of, um, you know, self-conscious, self-referentiality and and, like, uh, commenting on, say, like the cliches or the forms of mm-hmm. your medium, but also just like doing them, I agree that I find that quite obnoxious. <laughs> I I have a mixed view of
2: it because I do like a lot of kinds of like metafictionality, self-referentiality, post the postmodern novel, but we've gone from mm-hmm. like postmodern self-referentiality and like really like believing that this stuff matters and that's why we're talking about it to this sort of embarrassed half-hearted often what gets called in like a to to name an evil an ancient evil tv tropes way deconstructionary deconstructions mm-hmm. and when they say exactly. deconstruction oh. they just mean we're pointing out what we're doing so that you'll judge us less harshly for doing it it's not that's postmodern exactly it. it's post whedon um.
3: Oh! I also, I'll also throw in there. It's post Ryan Murphy. Like, He's listen, I have if, if I see Ryan Murphy, it's on site. Like, it's, <laughs> I have my own speech about Ryan Murphy, but it's very much. I, I feel like it's exemplified by the transition between season one and seasons two of Glee, where it's oh, no. like oh, season no. one was very itself. And then season two was like, oh, I know you guys thought it was funny that we were doing classic rock. And now we're pointing out that we did classic rock. Uh... And then just like literally referencing decisions they made narrative wise as like, you know, oh, we're we're improving and we know that we're doing these things. And then they just keep doing. Okay, sorry. I'm not. No, gonna no, I, no I, I mean, just speaking so of but... things
4: we're doing, what if we talk about. Etymology. <laughs> yeah.
3: Let's, yes. Okay. Let's, so, so let's do that. Oh wait, actually, can I just point out one small line mm-hmm. from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. This is from etymology. Yes. Okay. Sorry. okay let's yeah. go on. Let's uh, talk about etymology is, yeah.
1: then.
3: Etymology. So there's a line close to the end of this where uh, he says, "Only in my head I cast the Pequot as the America I want to see." As a way to say, like, "Well, this is a diverse, race-blind yeah. cast." Yeah. We should. We should and certainly it's...
0: talk about the casting. Uh, this might. Anyway, please go on though.
3: Oh no! Yeah, uh, I guess that's just a point I—I I definitely just want to talk about how he likes to point out so much about you know these are conscious decisions I'm making about you know casting lots of different people that aren't just white people in yeah, this musical, so, and like I gotta say, yes, as a Hispanic person, like my my family's from Mexico, like pretty much all the way back, and it just mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, this is
2: this is much more a white liberal declaring isn't it amazing that America has all these different colors of people in it than it is, like, attempting to communicate a particular experience or even, like, frankly, engaging with the bizarre existing white guy talks about multiculturalism that is Moby Dick. There's a lot going on with how Moby Dick thinks about race and America and America as a society that has a sort of multiracial construction. From the, The way I would gloss it is that Melville imagines this sort of like engine where different like races and cultures bring are providing different kinds of like energy and force and then they all get sort of connected together in this elaborate instrument his his main dichotomy is like christian versus pagan which works out to white versus non-white and pagans provide energy and christians provide sort of uh ethics and philosophy and together you can create this really you know this sort of idealized human and engine that nonetheless, you know, isn't... It isn't perfect in the book. But that's his sort of weird 19th century way of doing (laughs) liberal multiculturalism. And the thing is, that's not what Malloy's engaging with. He just sort of sweeps it aside for his idealized America that is nonetheless (laughs) all on a sinking boat.
0: Yeah. I wanted to mention, by the way, that, uh, you know, the the kind of... um, Race-blind casting, or I'm not sure I think it was race-blind, um, because I I think that some of these characters were very purposefully cast as people of particular races, but, uh, certainly casting of characters as, casting of many characters as races that they are not in the novel, um, and just generally an extreme consciousness of the race of the cast, um, that is one of the ways in which I think we're like, oh yeah, this is doing a Hamilton. And of course, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that Hamilton is famous for. However, even as Hamilton is really, really obvious about and makes that like race-related casting thing like a huge central part of itself, Hamilton is so much less obvious about it than this <gasps> show. <Huh? laughs> Hamilton mm-hmm. never has anyone turn to camera and be- <laughs> turn to camera, turn to the audience and be like- and I choose to imagine Alexander Hamilton as a man with a Puerto Rican background, you know? <laughs> which which this show does, in etymology, basically. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. <sighs> I I think I want to talk a little bit, and Danny, help me out with this. Just mm-hmm. what etymology is. Because it's, when Ishmael comes on, he, it, he looks like, ed, through this whole thing, Ishmael is dressed like... A grad student at Harvard.
2: Oh, like
3: like at at this point in the musical, Ishmael isn't Ishmael yet. So
2: yeah, he's, is he's, is he's just literally Dave Malloy. He's just a guy. He's just a, he's yeah. Just he's a- Dave so Malloy. yeah, the, the, the question of on...
0: the question of in whose voice Ishmael speaks in this in this song, it's not a song in this section, is is very interesting, I think. But so yeah, he's dressed in like modern dress. That's I did not oh, expect told, that at all. Modern
4: dress, and he even. I can't remember exactly. I wasn't paying that much attention because his his uh, entrance is very lax fanfare. You have the big mm-hmm. sermon, and then he kind of strolls on. And I was half expecting, and he kind of does half expecting this to be the like turn off your phones. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, because there's yeah. none of that. You know, like welcome to ART. So glad you're here. Please, um, please contribute to our annual fund. To get a season pass. This absolutely... And...
2: It is that in part...
4: Sorry, go on. Which Uh, it obviously... Yeah, it is. But then... First of all, it... Establishes this Ishmael who is always going to be... Not only, like, the narrator and kind of outside of it in that way, but literally... Doesn't stop ever being... This guy. This college... Guy... And also, he talks in Dave Malloy's voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also,
3: yeah, it's, it's like certainly Dave Malloy's voice because I mean, I I pointed it this out to Clay, and I, I didn't realize that he didn't know. But so Dave yep. Malloy originated the role of Pierre in Great Comet.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
3: he is another one of those like writer, lyricist, actor. Yeah, columns. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and which we're going to talk about uh, him as Pierre in a little bit once we get into more of the Great Comet controversy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fascinating. Go through that now. Yeah,
2: I gotta say, it is also, it's fascinating that this Ishmael, that he's clearly, like, speaking through, like, when he says, you know, my favorite book, and, like, did you know that Call Me mm-hmm. Ishmael isn't the first line of Moby Dick? Like, he's he's definitely putting a lot of himself out here, or at least wants us to think of it that way but he's cast Crazy. himself as a non-white actor.
0: Yeah, so it so is yeah. weird. This was something that was really striking to me when I listened to the show and when I read these lyrics, I was like, "Oh, obviously the person who's saying Moby Dick is my favorite book, I like to imagine it as like a, you know, as the America I'd like to see." The person who there's one very striking moment in this uh, speech where uh the line is it's been a couple of hard years for me. I lost someone. Uh I'm just I don't really feel safe in this country right now. I'm just not really sure who I am and how I fit. The person I assumed was kind of uh saying those things was Dave Malloy. I read a review of this play that assumed the person saying those things was the actor. Um Yes. What uh what's the actor's name? Sorry. Um It's um I, I should have had this up, my bad. Um Manic Chokshi. Thank yes, you. Yes, thank you. Um and uh Goes by
4: Nick professionally.
0: Yeah. Um and Yeah, and I actually have no way of knowing. Like, I guess it's possible that Chokshi lost someone in the time before the show came out, and certainly it's very possible that he was having feelings of like questioning his place in America. Um but I Strongly assumed that it was Dave Malloy who was having those feelings, and the ambiguity that exists there of like, is it Dave Malloy, the this, writer, the writer who is like white and like rich? Like, I don't know exactly where Dave Malloy is like economically, but like he he's, he's he wrote ponies, a... yeah, exactly. He's, like, he's pro, he's
2: at the very least he's prestigious.
0: Yes, so Most is it that... pawned
4: for a good amount?
0: Exactly. Um. Is is it that guy who he, I mean? My understanding is, is Dave Bolloy queer? No. Oh my, my god! god. What?
3: what? Holy shit! Dave Malloy is straight. Or I don't know. I mean, I know he's married to to a woman. Okay, and, okay. I know it's, it's, it's so, not even in his like. Mm-hmm. So it's ambiguous, mm, but like yeah, I, I've but never I never heard him referred to in like you know the wider Broadway queer community. Yeah, oh, we have oh, a I, lot yeah. More, like, my brain is figures. melting and, right like, now. Yeah, because like. Because, like, I hear a lot about, you know, like, Javier Munoz, who, like, uh, often in, like, understudies for Lin-Manuel Miranda, he talks about his own queerness a mm-hmm. lot mm-hmm. And, and being HIV positive. And so, you know, it's it's a whole thing. And, like, I never see Dave Malloy talked about it in this way. So it's, yeah, I'm just surprised that you guys are very surprised. I want to know more about I that. mean, well, <laughs> look
2: at this opening. Etymology is a perfect place for this. This opening where it's, you know, the first line of my favorite book. And, again, we know that Malloy was doing, like, the pip thing in 2014 we know that malloy has is clearly the one sort of driving this work it's possible that he found an ishmael who's also like super into uh moby dick but frankly the way the, the way it's written the way it comes across the fact that unlike in the fidala bit and we'll get to the fidala bit um there's no <laughs> reference to uh nick's ethnicity this is entirely like just Ishmael or Malloy or Nick, it's it's ambiguous. There's this whole section about how, like, getting the most queer subtext you can possibly wring out of the poor devil of a sub-sub librarian and this sort of introduction where, in the book, Melville is saying, yeah, I got all these quotations about, um... About whales from a friend of mine who is also a poor clerk who, like, find in a gra- or an usher in a grammar school, and that turns into this meditation and like this image of like, oh, they're just like an old married couple. Wink. We can't admit, you know, they're they're old, so they can't admit that they're gay, but they're clearly like together. And meanwhile, the you know the white busts of old white authors dance above their heads. There's this whole thing of like, there's this very strong sense of like, and you know, I'm. I'm a straight cis guy, so maybe I imagine this, but there's this strong sense of queer longing, of like, you know, there's this possibility Mm -hmm. here that's sort of hidden away, This talking about his love for Nathaniel Hawthorne and the fact that it never really, you know, anything happened with it, which is genuinely this tragic element of uh, Melville's life story, and connecting that to the wicked book, Royal in Hellfire, all of this is really saying, we're going to be drawing out the queer subtext that definitely exists in Moby Dick, and that that's Strongly implied to be why this book is so fascinating to, let's just say, the narrator. Uh, that this mm-hmm. um, this capacity to, to sort of see that this has always existed and that that is part of the American canon is, like, an important part of this. And my argument for this is the fact that, like like an old married couple is like separated out in time and in the lyrics to like just hammer that home.
0: Yeah, yeah. The
2: mm-hmm.
0: the uh the highlighting of like the sense of queerness that exists in the book and also the sense that uh Melville was like queer. The line is
2: Melville was almost certainly in love with him. and About like Hawthorne.
0: And like this is I basically agree that this is true. Um I mean, I think that reading a kind of 20th, 21st century conception of like queerness or gayness into Melville and Moby Dick is is complex because Homosexuality was not invented until the 1890s Uh,
2: In the sense of this particular form. Yeah, like
0: literally the word was not Yeah, yeah, but 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 it is also true that like if you read uh, Melville's letters to Hawthorne if you like learn things about their lives it's very clear that Melville had like incredibly intense, passionate feelings about Hawthorne and wanted like Hawthorne to be like a partner in his life and that Hawthorne did, did not... not
2: return these feelings. Yeah,
0: that like they were they were imp- like clearly Hawthorne cared about Melville but that like yeah, he did not
1: Want return that. the
0: extent of these feelings, yeah. Um <sighs> so like that's not bullshit but there is also, like, I think, a very uh, tempting thing to do, which is to be like, ah, yes, Melville's great tragedy is that he was a gay man, but he couldn't be out because it was the 19th century. And so we will look back and fix this for him and we will give Ishmael a hot boyfriend. Um, I mean,
2: to be fair, Melville does give Ishmael a hot boyfriend. I'm strongly <laughs>
0: I mean, yes, no. We'll get to that. That's the thing. That's part of what I think is bad about this is that it's like it denies what's... Actually, they're in the novel. Like, it's it's treating the novel as this kind of, like...
2: Utterly suppressed.
0: S- yeah, this kind of sad thing that couldn't Repressed. be what it should have been so we in the modern day can complete it by saying, by the way, Ishmael and Queequeg totally lovers. And it's like, guys, in the novel, Ishmael and Queequeg get married. <laughs>
2: It is, yes. I I was about to say it's basically true, but no, Queequeg says, we are married now, and we will keep our things in common, and where I go, you go.
0: Yeah, literally, he gives Ishmael half of his possessions, and Ishmael's like, I I can't accept this, and then eventually he's like, well, uh, if you insist.
2: Uh... It's really cute, but... (laughs) Well, yeah, there's, obviously there's a lot going on, and, you know, obviously, we have very strong opinions about, you know, how to read this, so... I don't want to preemptively say, and therefore this Queequeg is bad, but we'll have a lot to say about (laughs) Queequeg. But yeah, so that is, that sort of summarizes why, from my perspective, finding out that as far as we know, Dave Malloy is at least not out about being (laughs) queer is mind blowing.
0: Yeah, what does he even fucking mean when he says that he doesn't feel safe in this country right now? Like, what's unsafe for you, my guy? There wasn't even COVID yet. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I have a very... Str- I have a theory there, which is... Yeah? First, which is... So, obviously, I think I'm going to take it as a given that this play was not written with the cast it currently has specifically in mind. Because oh. that's not how... No, not saying the casting... Like, there is a cast book somewhere that says probably, like, quite po- there's a cast book that sa- has, you know... What race ideally each character should be? Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. But I do not think Ish. I do not think this was written with um with Chokshi in mind specifically. Okay, I think that it was written. I think that the cast book says possibly like the cast book says like for Ishmael possibly like someone of Indian or Middle Eastern descent. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, I definitely that think... That is
4: what I think it might say there. Yeah. Specifically for that, especially if you look at, you know, the time frame, that would have been mm. a big... That's the big issue in... Or that was a big thing, you know, 2017, 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this is sure. probably being... The bulk of this is being written is the travel bans, etc. Yeah. Mm. And I... Hope that this is not the case because I find it creatively like bankrupt, kind of yeah to put this word into like to kind of manufacture this i've like I'm not against blurring the line between actor and character and stuff, but When no, David Malloy yeah. does it, I don't like it yeah yeah <laughs>
2: it, it feels yeah. like stolen valor rather than yes. right. anything more interesting
3: stolen I, oh, be really valor. yeah, really interesting when we get to uh. What song is it? Uh Satology. Yeah. Because there's a line there that was taken out of the version we saw. Oh. And uh, it's the version. It's something. It's taken out from that version. It's on the Genius uh, mm-hmm. website. Mm-hmm. And so the the actor didn't say it, but Dave Malloy said it in a preview in 2018. So when we get to that, okay, just, I, yeah. I wrote it down. Thank you for yes. flagging you. that. That's, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I what? do think oh, maybe yeah. since we've been talking about
0: casting, it might be worth just like kind of. Talking a little bit about the cast at this point, because yeah. um, I, I do want to talk about, um, I want to talk about the way that race is used in the casting. I want to talk about the way that gender is used. And I want to hear from you two about how um, costuming is used around, like, race and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So let me just uh, pull up, like, the cast list. Mm-hmm. Um <sighs>
2: Although I will say, we could wait for the, um... Uh, the knights and squires section where characters mm, start being introduced. Actually, Maybe. yeah, you're right, yeah, you're so, right. So yeah. one, one character at a time, I think, will just yeah. allow us not to be swept away yeah. by the wave of decisions <laughs> okay. made by Dave Malloy.
0: So then, yeah, are we kind of good on etymology then? There's certainly yeah. more to talk about I, here, but... I have one Let's thing move. I want
2: to mention, which is that line, Wicked Book, Broiled in Hellfire. Uh, the line, you know, this is a wicked book, is taken from uh, Melville's writings. In fact, I think he wrote it to Nathaniel Hawthorne yeah, saying, yeah. I have written a wicked book. And the line about something being uh, baptized in hellfire is what uh, Ahab does with his harpoon towards the end of the novel when he's preparing to face Moby Dick. He declares, Not in the name of God, but the name of the devil, I baptize thee, as he makes his harpoon. It's metal as hell. Um, I was
0: yeah. Ben Melville did actually make that comparison in his letters. Oh, he did. Yeah, he said so,
2: that the uh the so, book was
0: So I think that the I think that I have written a wicked book was a different letter from the one that genius is quoting here, but here's uh-huh. here's a letter that he did write to to Hawthorne about the book. Yeah. The tale is not yet cooked, though the hellfire in which the whole book is broiled might not unreasonably have cooked it all ere this. This is the book's motto, the secret one. Ego non baptizo te in nomine but make out the rest yourself. Oh, and okay, so... so what, what he's saying there, the Latin bit there, translates to, uh, I do not baptize you in the name, and what he's cutting off there is the rest of what Ahab actually says in the book, I do not baptize you in the name of God, but in the name of the devil.
2: Okay, so that, so, okay, that's good to know. I hadn't realized that. So yeah, this is a thing that is said about the book, but the question of why that's the case, what exactly makes this book and story quote-unquote wicked, I don't think that comes through really in the musical.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, this is a matter for debate because when Melville wrote these letters, he did not really explicitly say why he thought the book might be evil. But no, I agree with you. I think that the question of what is subversive about Moby Dick? What scared Melville about writing Moby Dick? I think there are some really easy answers to this. One of those really easy answers is queerness, right? And I think that one's just actually incorrect um <laughs> yeah <laughs> because like mm-hmm. the well, well I do think that there is a like subtextual suppressed queerness in Moby Dick and and in Melville's life the way that we kind of think of like ah this person was gay but they couldn't say it because of the repression of the time that is like not how that functioned in the 1850s because because there wasn't yet a societal conception of homosexuality so there wasn't yet a way in which there was not yet, like, a suspicion that people might be gay.
2: At least not in the same way. I'm sure, there's, I'm sure this is a deep and deeply complex topic. Yeah I, yeah, I just mostly mean that, yeah, I, I think that that is an easy answer for the wickedness. I think there's a lot of other stuff in the novel. But my, my question here is not so much, does the musical have the same wickedness, and more, what is, quote-unquote, wicked to the audience, about this musical? What does it confront them with? Or what does it, like, bring forward that is, you know, devilish? And to this, I really do think we have to turn to our guests, because we're thinking in terms of the novel. Both of us are going to bring that there. And I just want to sort of, in the same way that I'd like to ask, what is this musical reckoning with? What's being reckoned is something we should sort of keep in mind, because I don't think these things are immediately obvious, unless if you've read the book, you bring in your own answer already.
3: Mm -hmm. (sighs) like that's that's the thing I mean I there there is no like worthy reckoning (laughs) being done here like it's it's reckoning with the fact that it wasn't written two months ago that's (laughs) that's kind of what I feel like it is like it's it's how it. It's like, oh well, I want the the cast to look this way, and like you know how modern America is because people of color weren't invented until the fifties, yeah. As we all know, <laughs> uh, so there, there's like that, and it's you know obviously the queerness angle. It's 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 reckoning it in the way a twenty fourteen Tumblr post would reckon with Moby Dick.
0: Yes, and
3: it's I I I don't I don't know, Clay. Like you might have a different thought about it I, than I do, but I mean I just there's no real reckoning being done here, in my opinion.
4: My – I think it's a two-sided reckoning. It's Those rare dual prong reckonings <laughs> that, that you read about in military history books. Um, <laughs> it is reckoning with Moby Dick. I think that Dave Malloy is deeply insecure. Okay, I'm going to be a bit – I'm going to get a bit do mean. It. Do insecure it. About do the it. Book. He is incapable of doing a deep enough reading to you know, do the real sort of resuscitative – and reconstructive efforts that I think there's a long backlog of on this podcast. Um,
0: <laughs> that's you know, a way of general, putting it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if
4: nothing else, like, good or bad, like, reckoning with the text. And instead, he's sort of trying to... Kind of, well, you, it's more a matter of plaster and wallpaper rather mm. than yeah. building from the foundation. And also he's reckoning with America in very much the same way, I think. I think this is trying to be a play about America in much the same way that Hamilton does. Um, You know, like I said, at some point I'm going to go on a rant about Hamilton during this, and I will keep it brief. (laughs) But the thing is that Moby Dick, I don't... Look, the book might be about it, but this musical fails to be about America, Yeah,
2: yeah, (laughs) and uh, And it turns (laughs) out same.
4: The whaleboat is America, but does not does not work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and and like Uh, I would definitely say I do think that Moby Dick the novel presents the Pequod as a a synecdoche for America, but the way that it does that is
2: not similar to the musical at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's for a lot of reasons. Maybe the most important being that like. I think this musical and, like, Dave Malloy have a deep, like, anxiety and shame about the idea of America and feel that it needs Mm -hmm. to be sort of redeemed, right? There's this need Mm -hmm. to say, ah, but America of today is multiracial. What if we could make that somehow good and make up
3: for our evil past? And
0: that's not how Melville thinks about America. Yeah, no.
3: You know, that's Dave Malloy's own white guilt. Yeah, no,
2: white, white guilt is absolutely present here. And also... I think that an important part is that this is also Dave Malloy throwing up his hands and saying maybe we should just all die and that would be better. Like there's, <laughs> that does happen. Yes, there's a lot of that yes. in this. Yeah. Oh no, I was just agreeing. <laughs> oh, okay, cool, cool. I, I just. I think that part of the reason this doesn't really reckon in a number of ways for me is that a lot of its answers are just throwing up its hands and saying, "Wow, shit's fucked, I guess. Uh, we'll all go down with the boat. No way out. Maybe the whales will do better and I will get we will get to the fucking whales." Um, and audience, you hear all that like nervous laughter. We will get to the fucking whales. Oh.
0: Although strangely enough, we won't actually get to the whales fucking, which the novel does.
2: Oh, no. That, um, that take a footnote. I know. Don't, it's don't not terrorize important. me with it's this. It's not important.
0: I'm just saying there is a scene of whales having sex in the novel. It's not in the show, which is honestly incredible restraint on the part.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you terrorize me with our past. Um, um, okay, so I think we've dealt with etymology as yeah. much as it can be dealt with.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, can we move- Let's He also talk- doesn't give
2: any etymologies.
0: No, etymology is not etymology. <laughs> no, All it is it's is- It's not. It's playing the role that etymology does in the novel, which is, like, this little thing that comes before the story that isn't really the story, so I get why he called it that, but yeah, there's no etymology. And it's also
2: him saying, I've read Moby Dick, you know, there's a section before Call Me Ishmael, it's called the etymology, look it up. Like, <laughs> this is- I think, in part, establishing the writing bona fides of, oh, we're not like the, you know, the classic movie adaptations that tear out all the weird stuff and just go to the adventure story. We're not Moby Dick in half the time. Uh, we're real Moby Dick. You're getting real dick here. <laughs> Sorry.
3: you heard it here first folks there's real dick here oh my god um okay
0: let's let's talk about loomings
2: loomings
0: so this this is one of the this is where the like just straight up direct quotation starts um most of this song is uh straight take it most of the lyrics of the song are straight from moby dick um and this is a bit that I would say almost every adaptation puts in somehow.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: Be, partly because Call Me Ishmael is so famous. It's the first line. So you've got to have the first line of the first chapter, and then you've kind of got to have the next couple of paragraphs to, like, justify that. Um, but also because, you know, this is the inciting incident of the novel. This is Ishmael deciding, I'm going to go whaling. Um, and so Looming's is like, well, why are you going to go whaling, Ishmael? Um, I'd say the answer in the musical
2: is oh I'm feeling you know I'm feeling bad I I see myself in the water uh it you know it does t- it's taking directly language from the book so it can't stray infinitely far
0: yes he he's it's totally true all this stuff about how like the the water has like a strange attraction to everyone that's right there in the novel um this stuff about how like Ishmael's feeling kind of bad and, and the sea is feeling somehow... kind of
2: suicidal
0: well that's okay that's the thing. My big hobby horse with Loomings is that every single adaptation of *Moby Dick* has to put Loomings in there. But very often they cut out what I consider to be, like, the core of this chapter, which is that Ishmael is, like, suicidally depressed. He cannot cope with life at all. And the reason he's going to see is that it's, like morally acceptable suicide not just that it's like kind of metaphorically oh you'll get away from the world but literally like there's a very high chance that you will die at sea without it technically being your own fault um and that's not unpresent in this song because it does have the line about this is my substitute for the pistol um and it has the mermaid singing which is kind of a That's something that shows up later in the book, but I don't think it's totally inappropriate to put it here because it is about the appeal of the ocean. Um, And there's a a sense of death in the mermaid singing, but but I don't think that that suicidality is followed up on in the rest of the show. And it's almost never like I have not seen an adaptation of Moby Dick that brings that to the fore in the way that I think it Mm. should be.
2: Yeah, and I think here's a great place to toss to our guests, specifically, what was your impression of of that?
0: Yeah, why did you think, I mean, did you think that Ishmael was suicidal when you listened to this uh, song?
4: I thought Ishmael wanted to go to the sea because he liked the book Moby Dick. You
0: know, <laughs> this comes I think that's... Immedi- it, it, it,
4: it, this comes immediately after etymology, and he's oh, still dressed like a grad student. Oh! Yeah. It flows directly in. He doesn't, like... There's not a transition of anything. It's literally, he, actually, he starts reading the book, which he is holding. Oh, wow. this is
2: galaxy-brained in a way I did not expect. Which is like, yeah, he
4: wants to go to sea because it happened in Moby Dick.
2: Wow. So Ishmael's been entirely vacated of his, like, internal 19th century motivations and is just, like, a figure for the audience and the, uh, the narrator.
0: Oof,
3: pretty yeah. much incredible it's it's like we're, we're gonna keep coming back to this strange idea of like play like said like the overlap of actor and character mm. and also playwright i'm gonna go yeah, far yeah. into to say dave malloy's role in all of this but it just like it, it keeps like fostering that sense of confusion very much on purpose and it's odd
2: yeah yeah uh so yeah it's it sounds like looming's kind of didn't have as much of an impact on, uh, on you two as it did on us in part because the staging undermines it.
4: Yeah. It, it kind of lands with a wet thud. Um, I mean, it's good. It also, part of the problem is that Melville, I can, I really like the way the phrasing here and I imagine it's good in a book, but, uh, there's no rhyme and meter. This isn't a song yeah. No Absolutely
1: <laughs> no. it's, it's, it's it's not a song. bad
4: Especially yeah. because and, and The and last like, song you heard Is the sermon Which is a song It's
0: a song Well the
2: good news and, is and it... As this goes on We'll get further away From the sermon
0: So
3: we'll forget That music exists
2: that was my argument. We'll forget
3: that music exists. No, and, and it's like, I feel like he's trying to do something interesting, like lyrically. Like, I feel like you see it in. Uh, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, Lame Is and Phantom, which mm-hmm. are also musicals that are sung all the way through. And when they try to do very talky things, it's on purpose. And if it's discordant, it's on purpose. But there's always some sort of meter. Even if, like, it's a weird time signature, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. still
1: uh, following I some sort of, notes. like,
3: rhythm. <laughs> no, exact. Notes was exactly what 13, I was thinking of. Like,
4: but, what is it again it, I don't remember I, it's like thirteen, it's 13 eight 13 or something.
3: something it's so unusual, <laughs> and you hear it, and it's weird, and it's got like seven different harmonies happening at the same time it's It's brilliant, obviously, mm-hmm. but it just like <laughs> if we can't get that here, like even I'm also thinking since we keep bringing up Hamilton, just like uh in the song take a break, like we have them reading directly like a letter they're writing for, to each other, mm-hmm. and then like later when we get i forget in what song, but like like washington's address like that's yeah. a that's a whole song, but they, they it's it's just done better, yeah because yeah. they acknowledge the difference between what they're doing in that moment versus when mm-hmm. they're actually singing an actual song.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, this, this definitely was did feel weird to me, even with much less of a musical background. <laughs> uh, I think the thing that is really weird in the lyrics here is that there are changes there's some very mm-hmm. major changes, but they're not to make it more musical they're really not.: <laughs> Yeah, the, the change that really stands out uh, is. In the Thousand Mermaids Singing, which as Mark mentioned is, this is from like page 470, chapter 112, and it's in the book. I actually don't dislike bringing it back here because repeatedly over the course of the book, Ishmael suggests this idea that like, you know, going to sea is opening the wonder world. The gates open, strange phantoms come forth. And slowly, from his initial suicidality and onwards into the book, you realize, oh, he means it's a way of dying. He means the wonder world as in paradise because the line from the mermaids in the, is, you know, the thousand mermaids sing to them, come hither, brokenhearted. Here is another life without the guilt of intermediate death. Here are wonders supernatural without dying for them. And the way this gets glossed and changed into uh, the Malloy version is here is another life. Here are wonders supernatural. Here is the face of God without dying. So rather than here is the experience of death, but you don't have to literally kill yourself, it becomes, here is access to God, here is, like, the truth of the universe without having to die. And it's a very different promise. And if he's gonna make that change, he could damn well make this metered.
3: Yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna be nicer on that because I don't want to be a total stickler Mm -hmm. for the meter and stuff, but it just, there's a certain thing when it's, it's, It just, yeah, like you were saying, there's no, if you're gonna edit it, if you're gonna, like, what's the point of just throwing the, like, it's a way of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation... (laughs) <laughs> and it was so labored it, when he sings that, and you're yeah. like, "Why are you doing it's this so... to him? Why are you doing this to us?" <laughs>
3: that's yeah. a professional it just, actor. It just keeps sounding like he's trying to catch up to his own song. Oh. Yeah, like he sings like the first couple words, and then he's rushing to finish the line. Yeah, and it just yeah. it just it mm-hmm. doesn't sound good. That's just that's mm-hmm. the thing. Like I think an actor, no matter how skilled, you can't deliver that convincingly mm-hmm. in it with yeah. musicality. You just can't. Yeah. and it's it also... a
4: difficult song to sing. I think but not because also, it's like... a good song.
0: I think there's yeah. also like weird like humor in it. I think mm, spleen yeah. is a funny word in, yeah, in the yeah. 21st <laughs> century, right? Like, and this is a you know this is a difficulty that one faces with a Moby Dick adaptation in general. Is like, okay, the the language of the novel is like beautiful and powerful, and it's a lot of why people care about it. But it also is like historical, and so it's hard to just straight up put Moby Dick language in the mouth of a character in the modern day and have people actually understand what it means. Like, I don't think, okay. I mean, like ART audiences are pretty bougie. So maybe a lot of them have like (laughs) taken English classes where they would have learned this, but nonetheless, I don't think your average person in 2019 knows what the fuck it means to drive off the spleen.
2: Now, to be fair, and this is is more a defense of Melville than of Malloy, uh, I do think that's intended to be very circuitous. Ishmael doesn't Mm -hmm. like, like, he says all these things that are really obviously, I was feeling like killing myself. Like, you know, my substitute (laughs) for the pistol and the ball, having no sword to fall upon, I instead go to sea. It's a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating circulation. All of these are ways of slightly classically and uh, circum-circum- Spectly saying I was experiencing suicidality rather than just saying I desired to kill myself, but that being illegal, you know, he's, he's not saying he's this isn't Hamlet soliloquy because Ishmael is way too uh, elliptical to admit to to be or not to be. That is the question. But also, I think I mispronounced the word for that kind of speech, but um, it also doesn't work as lyrics and like the joke <laughs> okay. there is just lost.
4: The actual Also joke. the brief note being spleen is melancholy because it's the black bile. Yes. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. That and that's totally what Ishmael's going... is talking about. Um,
3: yeah. Yeah. We're talking about the four humours here, folks. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs>
2: the four humours, which is when all four of us laugh because we can't deal with Dave Malloy anymore.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh yeah.
0: Are, could we possibly uh talk about knights and squires? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's go. Yes. I think right.
2: we've bloomed enough.
0: Uh, I, I'm nights.
4: interested in how it's divided into three songs...
0: Okay, that's a little, um, uh, that's actually, like, pretty fair in terms of taking it from the novel. Yeah, the novel has two
2: separate chapters, both titled Knights and Squires, without a distinction of one and two in the novel. There's just two (laughs) chapters, both both titled Knights and Squires, and, you know, when you look at it in (laughs) in, like, any version of it that's even a little bit more, like, not trying to be just the authentic text, there's gonna be Knights and Squires parentheses, one. Knights and Squires, parentheses, two. But that's not how it is in the original book. Melville, I love you, buddy, but stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that division into three, we can't... It, it's it's glass houses here. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: How did how was this staged? How did uh, the rest of the cast get
3: there? If Fishmail was just, <laughs> <laughs> they just...
0: They just walked on?
3: I think they... They just walked on and like they all kind of, of a sudden stormed the stage. on in character. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, the stage metaphorically became the ship, and yeah. then everyone just walked on and was doing their job. Oh, the and yeah. Stub ship.
4: was very stompy,
3: very stompy.
2: And is, there, is there a point after which this, where the stage isn't the ship?
4: Yeah, the the stage at one point is the ocean. Right, the stage becomes right. uh, multiple ships. The, uh, stage the
3: stage at one is point underwater. is underwater. Oh. And at one point, it's a oh, stand up I... stage. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. So right. It's true. Okay.
2: So we can't justify the um, pacing decisions made here with okay, we can't introduce, because in the book, Queequeg and Ishmael meet on land and then sign up on the Pequod together. Whereas here, I know that they meet on the Pequod. And I was sort of weighing this decision. I was like, okay, the way this can be justified is maybe if they really want to establish the sense of place that you're always on the Pequod and, like, things off the Pequod happen in the aisles or something. That was my, like, totally hypothetical justification mm-hmm. for why that scene wasn't before this. And now I have no justification for it. <laughs>
0: Um and so uh and and the the mates, the rest of the cast who show up at this point, they are in like period men's costumes. Yes. Yeah. Does Ishmael at any point put on a period costume?
3: I I think To. uh I think
4: think he 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 is what I remember he is wearing a like Renaissance (laughs) fair. Or, like, yeah. he's wearing, like, a flowy, white men's linen shirt mm, of yeah. this sort of a thing, and he takes off a jacket.
3: Okay. Yeah, that's, okay. that was it.
2: Yeah, so, so there is some costuming development mm-hmm. to make him more fit in, but it's not like he literally puts on, like, a, you know, seagoing coat and hat mm-hmm. and etc. He's not, like, actually having a major visual transformation. Yeah.
4: And he has yet mm-hmm. to leave the stage, so the, the continuity yeah. is still, this is this is some guy. This yeah. is a wishbone um, situation. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> okay, glad we established that. You okay. got isekai into Moby Day. Oh <laughs> my god. You
0: got isekai no.
2: Dave I, Malloy, Isekai protagonist, up, no.
0: I woke up on a 19th century <laughs> whaling ship and there's only one bed?
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay, 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 okay. Re- I am c- circulating, I am driving off my spleen, <laughs> we are returning to Stubb and Starbuck.
0: Okay. Oh. So yeah, this yeah. is- Night- And Flask, I guess. Knights <laughs> and Squires introduces- Knights and Squires 1 introduces, basically just introduces Starbuck, um, the character, the first mate of the Pequod. Um Yeah. This is very straightforward in terms of characterizing Starbuck. he's a upstanding man basically um
2: yeah i'm I'm interested in uh like you know the mates the mates come on presumably they interact with each other they're in period dress are they like how are their are their personalities like really obvious in the way that they're they're acting and staged? Are we getting like a focus on them, or they, or is this really mm. just like hello, hello, hello? Now we will introduce ourselves.
4: The, the acting is the acting is good. The actors cool. in this are all kind of uniformly good, I think. Nice. Um, S- Starbuck did a very Starbuck very much. You know, you got the impression he's he's a, he's, a, he's a he's a normal, fine, upstanding first mate. Yeah, um, that that's stomped a lot and was kind of. I don't know if he's supposed to be small, but Stubb was very small on account of being played S- by. You know, the actress is a fairly small woman.
2: Yeah, yeah. Stubb is not <laughs> large. Flask is the tiny one in the book. But frankly, I, Flask I'm was glad. Flask's
4: also small.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm glad they got a little bit of that. And, like, they. I hope that the. The physical difference between the mates and the harpooners is very much in the book that the, I mean, first of mm-hmm. all, the mates are all white and the harpooners are a variety of other uh, races, straightforwardly. And the, um, the mates are like different parts of American, like whaling, uh, you know, culture. I think that they're from mm-hmm. different places around the seaboard. They have, they all have different, like personalities and approaches to running their whale boats. uh and there's very much that like i mentioned melville has this dynamic between uh white sort of intellect and expertise and non-white energy vitality and like uh you know sort of you mm-hmm. know they use the line noble savages later in this musical and that's a lot of what he's going for um you know in, a, in his own weird way but i find it it's just interesting to think about it Because the Mates are also, besides Starbuck Kind of comic characters uh, Flask and Stubb get a lot of comedy moments In the novel mm-hmm.
0: Yeah um, I'd love at this point to talk about the casting Of the Mates, or at least about the casting of Starbuck yeah. um, all, uh, all Three Mates Are cast as uh, People whom I believe the audience Would have read as women um, at least one of them, uh, because I kind of looked up, I wanted to know a little bit mm-hmm. about the cast's background, so I kind of looked them up online, um, and Star Busby, who plays Starbuck, um, their, like, social media says, uh, any pronouns, um, so. Okay. Uh. Love mm-hmm. that. Yeah, um, but mm-hmm. I do think, based on, like, pictures of Busby from the performance, um, I think the audience would only have been aware of that if they had looked in the program and seen that the program uses both she and they pronouns for Busby and had been the kind of person who understands what that means. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas, like, if you are just watching this, you're like, ah, well, we have women in men's clothing because that's how the show is cast. Got it. That must mm-hmm. I-, I think that is probably what most audience members would have assumed about Busby. Um... um yeah, it's
2: it's an interesting note, especially given how Starbucks going to be played and how Starbucks going to be portrayed. Uh, the already... torch
0: song. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah.
0: <sighs>
2: um. But yeah, I I don't have much to say about uh, mm. Knights and Squires one.
0: Yeah. Um. This is a fine like. Uh, I think there will be more for us to say about Starbucks later. Um. But. This is basically unobjectionable to me as a way of presenting him as a character,
3: um
2: yeah, it doesn't sound like it made a large impression at the uh at the actual premiere
3: nope <laughs> <laughs> it, it, mostly because it just like part nights and squares, part one, two, and three kind of all bled in yeah yeah, it makes yeah. Sense. yeah
4: it's worth noting, and, it's very short
3: yeah, yeah. It's, it's very is. short it's very short uh, it's honestly kind of funny i I feel like
0: uh. If I were watching this show or or like when I was listening to it, I do not think I would have conceived of these three parts as different songs, yeah, I would have yeah. conceived of them as three parts of a of a single song um mm-hmm.
2: yeah, also, I suspect that would be a more coherent song, uh so yeah, let's just move on to part two and probably part three in short order,
0: yeah, um, and these just introduce Stubb and flask um, and these are basically the descriptions of Stubb and Flask that are in the novel, also that like uh You know, Stubb is kind of, uh, has this, like, weird, constant sense of humor, uh, that is a little bit, uh, like, that's just his answer to everything. Um, and then Flask is kind of, uh, no thoughts head empty other than killing whales.
2: Yeah, I actually really (laughs) like Flask's little couplet here. And I'm Flask, Flask, mediocre Flask, I don't know much, and I'm not gonna ask. That's actually music!
1: Mm
3: -hmm. That's, that's neater <laughs> yeah yeah and i i will point out that there's like a line close to the the end that's like and all and these three noble white men like it's again very much emphasizing the like whatever race these people are cast as that's not the race they were in the book winky face yep yep so, yep yeah. yep
2: uh, there's yeah. also then introduction of the harpineers and sorry clay mm-hmm. oh no i was gonna i
4: uh nothing. <laughs> I was just yeah. just okay. noting, it's all good. I, I was surprised they did get a good job do a good job of explaining to me that Flask hates whales.
3: Yeah? Yeah. Yes, yeah. they did do that.
2: <laughs> he hates them in like a way that in the book is very clearly just like, yeah, Flask is small, whales are very large, and he takes that personally. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's me. That's a little <laughs> <laughs> I listen, I'm five feet tall. I'm small. Oh, buddy, I feel
0: you. I'm five two. Uh <laughs> well, there we
2: go. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, Flask is the because Stub and Flask don't get a I mean, there will be more Stub, but not a lot more Flask. And mm-hmm. frankly, that's also true in the novel. Flask is uh, basically of the trio of mates, Flask is the one most just concerned with making money, uh Dealing with whales in a sort of, like, mildly peeved way has no interest in these, like, wider meanings and doesn't have the kind of, like, infectious, obnoxious humor of Stub. So Flask mm-hmm. is very much the least important mate. Uh, so I actually quite like the way Flask appears in the musical occasionally with, like, uh, just a lot of good humor in how it's written and a lot of, again, novel, metered language <laughs> to communicate Flask's deal. Mm-hmm. And I... Yeah, I, I weirdly liked Flask a lot in this adaptation. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Thinking Flask about... is
4: maybe my favorite character.
0: <laughs> Thinking about Stubb <laughs> and Flask <laughs> in the novel and in this show, I think that Dave Malloy replaced the comic Stubb and Flask interludes in the novel where, like, the two of them have this sort of back and forth where they're co- they'll kind of comment on Ahab or, like, the things that are happening, and Stubb will have his, like, bizarre little like joker-fied perspective on it and flask will basically be like yeah i don't know about that man wild um <laughs> they repla- he's replaced those comic interludes with the whale song interludes with which Degu are and Tash-Tigo. which feature Dagoo and tashtigo and which have maybe a little bit of lightheartedness to them but which are for the most part like so fucking serious
2: Yeah, I also, this is where we get the introduction of our Harpeneers, uh, again, these, the, the way the lyrics put it is, three noble not-white men, noble savages, and, like, there's a huge winky, like, you know what that means, it's racist, Mm -hmm. um... But I want to point out that the description of Dagoo, uh, which um, mentions that he's, you know, huge, he's a harpioneer from Africa, he described as having a lion-like walk, that's from the book, but adding that he has a giraffe-like stance, that's not in the novel as far as I am aware. And,
1: oh. like,
2: here's the thing, if I had more charity towards this musical, and that has long <laughs> since dried up, um, I would say if you really want to emphasize that aspect of how... The novel treats this character I don't think it's a bad Idea to add more of that Like really obvious You think you're being you know uh, Positive but in a modern context It obviously sounds super racist to be like And here's a set of African animals that we can compare this African man to But I don't feel like it lands that For a number of reasons
0: Yeah Um
2: (sighs) And even then it's sort of like Do you really want to play with that fire?
0: Also, look, this is not necessarily something that I have a coherent statement on, but I do think I want to note it. In the book, in a way that is quite racist and, and exactly what you'd expect from a 19th century depiction of, like, a huge, powerful black man, Degu is described as being very dark. He's called coal Black. Degu in the show is played by someone who... I would not describe that way. I mean, okay, I would not describe a human being as coal black yep, in yep, any yep. A context, but like, he is not a very dark-skinned person. He is he is black, but he he's he's fairly light-skinned. Like. And I don't think that I'm like, oh, they should have definitely cast a darker skinned actor. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. not the statement I'm trying to make, but the, it's just it's there.
2: <sighs> the ways in which the the musical sort of Comically or sarcastically leans into some of Melville's racism and then leans back out of it is I think the best way to describe it is it's not really coherent, and that makes it muddled yeah mm-hmm. um but yeah it's this is this is a hard thing because like I don't know what the correct thing to do to adapt characters that have so much of racism in them. I don't think it's what the musical does. But I mm-hmm. don't know what the correct thing would be.
0: Yeah.
3: Like, uh, it, it's just, it's that complicated issue that people keep coming back to. It's like, oh, like, we, like, what do we do about all these, like, extremely racist movies that were also really important to our, like, cinematic history? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's that same question where it's like, you, you can't fix it. It's not fixable. Like, the most real, at least that's my perspective, the most you can do is just acknowledge being like, hey, this was extremely, extremely racist. And and like unfair And it just It's it's kind of It's a difficult thing To try to go back to And try to fix Because it's like Fixing it sometimes Feel like you're erasing it But yeah. then not fixing it And not acknowledging it Feels like well it's not real But so on the other hand It Yeah
2: Attempting to fix it And acknowledging it In um, a number of numbers As this musical will do Not necessarily the answer either But on that Yeah I'm willing to say That it's more Like the actual Like way it was done <laughs> because,
0: Yeah Um Oh yeah, they, like even in even in introducing the Harpeneers, the musical can't pick a lane because it's like Dagu and Tashtigo when they introduce themselves. Straight up do it. Yeah, it's- they're just, they're quoting directly from the novel. There's, we're just putting Melville's like racist descriptions of these characters on the page and we're not going to really contextualize them. We're just going to let you understand that you know, a giant harpooner from Africa, an unmixed Wampanoag hunter, you understand that these are racist things that Melville is doing. But then when we get to Queequeg, we're going to explain to you that Rokovoko is a made-up island. There's going to be that element of irony specifically with Queequeg and not with the other two.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm... I'm, I, I don't know if this is something that would have stood out because, you know, this is a quick series of introductions, but, like, I'm really interested in whether the, like presentation of how these actors enter how they're like sort of uh, how their portrayal of the part is going at this point in time are they like leaning into it with costuming and behavior or are they backing off from it to like try and ironize it that way and again i don't know if i would actually have noticed that myself watching it so
4: dagu and teshtigo it's worth noting are both until at least the whale song interlude are being played, complete. I don't know how to say completely straight because they're not acting like racist stereotypes, but they are. They're playing serious characters.
2: Yeah. Okay. So they
4: is a joke, or like Quikwag yes. is kind of bouncing around, is very obviously revving up for the comic song he has later. Oh,
3: and I, I seem to I'm remember mad. his costume being the most. Different. Yeah, it's
4: like it is a. It is a, like, kind of overblown Pacific Islander get-up. Yeah. Oh, my um,
3: God.
2: I'm
4: Tesh just like a they... mm. testigo has, I believe, I remember a headdress.
3: I think that might have been Fidala. Fidala? No, no, not, not uh... the turban,
4: but, like, there was... Oh, I, oh, okay, I, like right. a war bonnet. I think... Yeah, a war bonnet.
0: Wow. Um Or Walk some... It,
4: it's... I don't... I, um...
0: You don't remember we, the yeah, specifics. Yeah. If, I don't yeah, remember specifics. I don't remember the
4: specifics, but there was some lingering, like, kind of basic... Stereotypical Stereotypical Native American signifiers. Yeah, yeah. There. Mm,
2: yeah, that's... I gotta say, Queequeg, when he shows up in the book, is wearing a top hat and, like, a kind of ill-fitting suit, because he's been, like, in Kentucky, uh, Connecticut for a while. Um, no. he, it's... Or in... Shoot, I just forgot. We're going to talk about Massachusetts. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm I'm from the Midwest.
0: Okay, I have an important important question about the costuming. How are Queequeg's tattoos portrayed?
2: Oh
4: wow! Yes, I have a good I have good news, which is I just found a picture of all these people. Oh, okay. oh boy! Right. Oh, excellent. Um,
0: please send it to I, the group chat if you would. I mind. need to find yeah.
4: a way to um. Send it to the chat because okay. it's a JPEG image. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know how it is. I maybe while it.
0: you're doing that, I'll I'll talk a little bit about Queequeg's tattoos in the context of the novel. Um, which is that like the the novel talks a lot about Queequeg's tattoos. They are, I mean, they are an object of fascination. Um, yeah, they're they're like the first thing Ishmael sees about Queequeg when he encounters him. They they come up frequently in later discussions of quequeg um the question of like what they mean and like how they were uh, like who inscribed them on quequeg's body and for what purpose gets some discussion and it's thematically interesting to the novel um but also very racist like basically everything in quequeg's depiction yeah it's it is very complicated
2: because i do want to note that melville did travel in uh, the Pacific Islands and was drawing a lot on his own experiences, but he did invent an island and produce this idea of Queequeg in some ways as sort of an epitome of his thoughts on, uh, you know, quote-unquote the pagan, on Mm non-white island cultures, and, you know, obviously that's going to be quite racist. But at the same time, he's deeply invested in Queequeg as a heroic figure. Queequeg is extremely, like, I would say important to uh Ish to Ishmael like emotionally he's extremely important to the early plot he does kind of fade out as the novel moves on but so does Ishmael and Queequeg's tattoos and their meaning is connected to the main themes of like undiscoverability and unknowability, and there's this idea that Queequeg's tattoos are in fact not traditional, but are like a secret language and code that one mystic produced and then had tattooed on Queequeg as a, you know, as royalty to uh, preserve them, but Queequeg himself and everybody besides the tattooer does not know what they mean and there's this implication that they contain some deeply important secret of theology or something that would be meaningful to the plot but you can't get at it just the same way that the marks on whale's skin is discussed as a kind of hieroglyphic the novel's very interested in the idea that Queequeg is this like epitome of a number of things and that's racist it's not Mm -hmm. great the way Queequeg is handled but also Queequeg as a character is this fascinating and developed figure and the hearing that he's just a joke in the musical is making me so mad (laughs) Yeah.
1: Just to make um, sure found...
0: I'm just make sure I'm understanding this image. Uh the person on the left in like the orange thing is Quequeg. The person Queequeg. in the foreground is um Teshtigo. Yes. And then the person in the background in the teal thing is Dagu.
4: Yes. Yeah, and so the wow. guy's dressed I, I think the one in blue is Ishmael. So no, he's still wearing his jacket. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. Um
0: yeah. <laughs> I also think, as far as talking about this costuming, that we should discuss the fact that Queequeg is wearing a skirt.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. And that, like, I do not know whether the outfit that they've put Queequeg in here is, like, drawn from some particular culture. It's completely possible that it is. Like, skirts or, like, garments that don't have Mm -hmm. pants are not gendered female in probably most parts of the world's, like, traditional clothing. mm -hmm. However... The combination of the fact that Queequeg is, like, the only person on stage in a skirt, right? Because everyone else is, I mean, everyone else is wearing pants. Yep. And is, like, hopping around and comic? Not great. Oh my god! (laughs) Yeah,
2: also, I want to point out that I actually want to point, uh, put a a positive note on the costuming for uh, Dagu and Tashtego here because they are Mm -hmm. very standard sailor's outfits. You've got like a shirt, rolled up sleeves, uh, the same kind of uh, hairstyle you generally see on people, uh, you know, in this kind of, you know, let's say tall ship, uh, you know, master and commander Mm -hmm. kind of stuff with a Q. Uh, Tashtego does have a... Um, I do not remember the term, so I'm not going to attempt it, but a you know very obviously Native American you know object of clothing, but it's just the one around the neck. It's probably mm-hmm. an object of... Uh... My
4: recall was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: he doesn't so, have anything on his apologies. head, but he is
0: wearing some kind of like beaded garment on and the front it's, of his But it's,
2: it's ornamental. It's quite possible this is a thing with a particular ritual meaning that I don't know, and so I apologize yeah. for but what's But what it's Absolutely. doing is saying, here is a normal sailor, but he is marked out in this particular way as native mm-hmm. American and that 's how he and that 's how we 're sort of identifying him in this narrative and similarly uh, Dagu is just wearing normal sailing clothes, but is a black man, and I think that that is actually a pretty interesting and effective way of costuming for okay on the one hand, these harpooners are just people, they are sailors but also they are being understood in this frame through their race. And we're going to mark mm-hmm. that out really visibly. And I do want to give them give the musical points for mm-hmm. having managed to get between what I saw as sort of the skill in Charybdis of depicting them visually. And then, of course, throws away all um, our goodwill with Queequeg.
4: <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. glad I found the picture. Yeah,
2: I know. It have a yeah,
4: lot more you. on both of those. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. of course, the last person that uh, this introduces is Pip. Um, and that's also... Actually, the novel does introduce Pip in this uh, Knights and Squires section. So uh, yeah, yeah. we could... Like, I bet it might have felt in this moment like, Oh, who's this... Who's Pip? Why are you introducing him here? Uh Is he really that important? Uh, but in fairness, the novel does the same thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I will yeah. say that... Um, it's really weird that they introduce Pip as Alabama boy, because uh while Alabama is repeatedly used to refer to Pip in a racial sense, he's from Connecticut in the novel. And in fact it is Stubb being racist to him that brings Alabama in.
0: Yeah. What? Like okay, the novel, Wait, the novel does use The it...
4: musical has him from Alabama.
0: Yeah, so this is a yeah. this is something that's if... genuinely a little confusing in the book mm-hmm. because it the the phrase Alabama boy is used to refer to Pip. However, it's also multiple times stated that he, like, grew up in Connecticut, that Connecticut yeah. is where he's from. The mm-hmm. novel is just using the idea of Alabama as, like, a way of talking about blackness. Um, or... Yeah,
2: an American, mm-hmm. a black American who, you know, grew up, I mean, and frankly, under the shadow of slavery, there's a line where Stubb literally says, you know, uh, you'll I couldn't, you know, the whale is worth more than I could sell you for in Alabama. Like, Stubb is a real jerk to Pip. There's no defense there. But it's real weird that the musical doesn't have any of Pip's biography, which Ishmael gives us in the novel. Melville, like, goes through, you know, here's where Pip grew up, here were his sort of experiences prior to the things that happened to him. Whereas, weirdly, and this will come up again with Queequeg, the musical vacates that. It just says, you know, Alabama boy about Pip. And that's, it's weird.
0: Yeah, it is weird. Um, Pip also, by the way, um, Pip is played uh, by a black woman um, doing like a really obvious little kid voice. Um, yeah, I just yeah. want to mention that since we were talking about the casting generally, I think that's of relevance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, and then should we move on to the the last section of Knights yep. and Squires? Or
2: yeah, yeah, let's charge on.
0: So this one is called uh, Nice and Squire's Three Isolatos and this is kind of about like the whole crew collectively. Um,
2: Yeah, no. A lot of stuff in this uh, in the text here. Uh,
0: This is one of those places where it's directly quoting the novel but in a way that like really shifts what the novel is saying. Yeah,
2: I I would love to sort of again throw to the guests, what did what did you get out of this section? Because it's such a such an odd set of decisions. And also it's cleaving so close to some important things in Moby Dick.
3: Like, at least for me, I mean, I, I came into this having a passing familiarity mm-hmm. with Dave Malloy, So honestly, I just took this whole, like all three parts as this is just the prologue from great comet. Just Oof. done for Moby yeah. Dick.
4: Yeah. Which is seriously that was kind of my only impression. Introducing every character in the novel. Cause they won't be introduced anywhere else.
3: <laughs> mm, yes, Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's, that's fair. And you know, the, Frankly, I think the book, is a, the book Moby Dick is a better fit for this because it does take some time to introduce you to the various characters kind of in a similar way. Um, but the thing that really stands out for me in this is the usage of this idea of, um, you know, we will lay down all the world's grievances before God and God shall be judged. And mm-hmm. it's like really clearly being like, and the grievances here are specifically American racism. Uh, you know, uh, specifically these are these are grievances of exclusion and uh, of historical ills. You know, every time we were beaten, butchered, kicked, and cut, and then Queequeg says mutilated, Dagoo says humiliated, Teshtego says hated. So you have this very clear sense that this is like a multi-ethnic America going to lay down its grievances before God. And I just feel like this is both a weird take on the book where— Ahab is the one laying down the grievances in the book. Ahab is the one presented as confederating all these members into the crew and bringing them down uh, to as his accompaniment to lay his grievances before God. Ahab's not in this one. Interesting. So yeah. wait,
4: Ahab mm-hmm. comes out before... In the he book, doesn't does Ahab come out, come out an, before he comes out here.
2: No, no, it's it's a nar- it's a narrative thing where this is okay. one of the first. Like Ahab has been, I think, discussed briefly. He's been considered. Uh,
0: one of the things I think that's very true about the novel that isn't true about this show is that Ahab has a real presence in the novel before he actually. Is seen by any of the other characters
2: There's um there's in fact uh, Something that's completely dropped from this Is that Elijah who we see later In the pip sequence uh, And like Elijah is a sailor who Accosts Queequeg and Um uh, and Ishmael On the dock and says do you know who you've signed up With Ahab have you heard about All these strange doings with him Ahab's already being assembled as this mythic Figure of great stature and terror And like Uh weirdness long Before he walks the deck
3: that feels like a great thing to put in a song. Yes! Yes, yeah, yes it would be. That, Sorry.
4: That's a lot of dr- drama, uh, the kind of thing you put on stage. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. You yeah. It, sometimes, you know, at the beginning of a narrative, you might want to tell people, like, hey, guys, some scary, wild shit is going to happen. But instead, you could just tell people at the beginning of a narrative, like, man, it sure is hard to live in Trump's America.
2: Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so this, I will say that this is the space where, you know, poor Alabama boys used about Pip. So that is present. He is just copying directly from the text here. But there's also um, so the line is actually um, uh, a deputation I'm, I'm cutting a little bit to make it fast a deputation from all the isles of the sea and all the ends of the earth, accompanying old Ahab in the Pequod to lay the world's grievances before that bar from which not very many of them ever come back. And Later on, Ahab will have this line about who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar. Like, what what kind of damnation can exist when we accuse God of having caused all these problems? Mm -hmm. This idea of God being judged is present in the novel, but much like Ishmael's suicidality, is at first sort of oblique and gets more and more clarified as you get closer to the final confrontation. But it's Ahab who is thrusting this challenge forward, and here it is multicultural America and the existence of racial hatred that causes us to need to thrust this forward at God and ask God to, you know, you know, explain why this happened. It's just really different and not really well thought through in how it's different. Ah, it's, it bothers me because it is taking this little bit of the book that I really liked and that I think is really well-written and it's, Rearranging it. Similarly, we have the return of the mermaids here And there's this rearrangement, come hither broken-hearted, there is another life And here there's this line, sail away from the dirt and stone and graves Like this idea that you're escaping death You're sailing away from the real history of American brutality, of genocide, of slavery, into some other kind of world. When the actual line with graves related to the mermaids, again at like 470, so at the very end of the book or close to it, is put up your grave and come to sea. Die. Die. And here it's escape death, leave it behind. It's a total inversion
0: yeah especially because in many other places in the book, the idea that the ocean is a massive grave comes up a lot uh, because you know because it when, is. when people drown right they fall to the bottom of the ocean, and so they're they are buried in the ocean and
2: uh, they 're lost yeah. forever, and the chapel where the sermon takes place is the walls are covered with grave memorial plaques for sailors either known to be or assumed to be dead at sea, and that's a major image that moves through the initial bit where a, uh, Queequeg and Ishmael are preparing to set out to see that they are in some sense going to death in life. Whereas here it's a way of escaping out of death into life, and that's just...
4: The set designer was robbed! It's, it's really... The set designer it's... was robbed! That's such a fun thing to put on stage! Set the whole play in the chapel for all I care!
0: Yeah, yeah. no, it's true! The, like... I, the, the, uh, I, the grave markers are... Very visually cool, and the 1956 movie does an amazing job with those things. There's, like, this slow pan through the chapel, and you see all of these grave markers past the the people in the chapel, and you just really get this sense of a culture that is steeped in, like, Death at sea. Death at sea, and also, like, the awareness that death at sea is, like, this horrible kind of
1: ambiguous
0: yes because you'll never really know if your husband died at sea you'll Mm -hmm. just know that he never came back
2: yeah (laughs) yeah i right i'm clay i'm gonna make you more angry in the in the chapel of the sermon father maples like uh his what's it called his plinth his his oh yeah where he gives the sermon from i'm forgetting the word is shaped like the prow of a boat and he climbs up to it on a little rope ladder that he pulls up behind him before narrating his sermon
3: Oh my god!
2: I'm I'm seething right now because that.
3: Th-
4: think of how useful you, how good it, how easily you could capture that theme by having the whole state, the whole place be the chapel, but also obviously it's the boat and it's the ocean, and now like you don't even need to say anything. There's that obvious parallel being drawn. You've. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I, yeah, I know. I'm big. <laughs> I've done. I'm. You know. I write a lot of plays. I've directed a lot. I. I know. That's where I'm really interested in theater, mm-hmm. and this is where it keeps failing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The the novel <laughs> is more like visually aware of the ship as like a place and as a symbol than it seems like the musical is.
1: Oh.
3: No. I. I. That doesn't. That, that tracks for me, just because, like, like we'd been saying, sort of, Dave Malloy, there's no reckoning being done mm-hmm. here. It's Dave Malloy trying to parse this text that, I mean, it's immediately obvious he doesn't even understand. And from what I'm gathering and you guys saying, he's drawing a lot of inspiration from that one movie in the fifties, 50s, fifties. 50s, uh,
2: we know that it's in his uh, list of inspirations. Well, he says all film adaptations of Moby Dick. Which coward? Watch the Whale God. We did an episode about it. It's like a really cool uh, Japanese movie from the nineteen sixties that sets a that adapts a novel that itself set a revenge quest against a whale in shore whaling off the coast of japan in the late 1800s it's a super cool movie it's in like black and white in the 60s i strongly recommend it uh it's got a cool whale um but it's it's a total conversion of moby dick into a totally different social and cultural context and it's fantastic um but i am pretty sure malloy has never heard of it anyways (laughs) that being said, when he says all adaptations, it's guaranteed that he's seen the 1956 one. It's this hugely famous Hollywood-like, you know, movie version of Moby Dick. I think that he does have a certain element of it. I think the thing that makes it most believable that he's drawing on that visually is the fact that the, um, the stage is like pale wood from the pictures I've seen in the Pequod is, I think, very dark wood and also has a lot of Ivory trimmings from whalebone, like a bunch of parts of the peck wad like the leg that Ahab walks on, are made from dead sperm whales. Again, I'm really sorry, Clay. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I well, I was about to say, I my blood pressure is not going to go any lower because the next song is a bosom friend.
0: <laughs> okay, oh, yeah, no! oh yes, my. I, yes, I think I think it's time, guys. Sweet I think we, baby we've, Jesus, yeah. Okay, a bosom friend. <laughs>
2: A bosom friends. This is the I...
0: song that is about Ishmael initially being shocked by a queequeg and being like, oh god, he's a cannibal, and then getting over it and deciding it will be totally okay to share a bed, and uh, uh, it yeah. also involves oh. a very silly description of a kind of uh, uh, anthropological understanding of different real-world cannibalistic practices and how they are not the same thing as the kind of absurd racist cartoon that you might think they are. And, like, Queequeg's particular Pacific Islander practice has these specific qualities and these ways that it morally justifies itself, and so it's not that big a deal.
2: And also, Queequeg loudly (sighs) declares himself a... uh... Cultural relativist, like in those words, and it pissed me off.
4: Um, <laughs> and then in another line, he says that I believe the flesh contains a bit of a soul, and it's yummy when you put in a casserole. yes yeah. um, he does. Which say makes that. all of uh, this sound pretty, like fall kind of flat. Um, yeah. also, it's a silly, silly show tune. Yeah, Cannot yeah. How silly and bouncy the music is.
3: It's it's so silly and bouncy. And
2: also, the entire opening thing is. Ishmael saying, I don't want to sleep with a cannibal, and then ends up saying, I might just sleep with a cannibal, and if you don't get the double entendre there, ask your mom. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, there's also, I believe, uh, some, yeah, um, there are also these lines about Ishmael being scared of Queequeg's big harpoon.
1: Oh god, uh, yes! (gasps) Yeah, there are
0: those lines. I want to be clear, there are totally scenes in the novel where Ishmael... Sees Kuiqueg's body and is intimidated and also like appealed. Like, there's a moment where um Kuiqueg is getting changed and he just starts taking off his pants. And Ishmael is like, huh, you, you can't do that! Someone might look in the window. And so, like Yeah, no, the It's not unpresent, but Oh yeah,
2: it... and like um Ishmael is so interested in Queequeg's body, not just in the tattoos that initially, like, cause him both to have this, like, ah, weird, and also, oh, fascinating, but also, like, he gets craniometric about it. He talks yes. about how, phrenologically, Queequeg is a George oh, no. Washington. Like, part of the thing going on with Queequeg <laughs> is that Queequeg is, like, when we say noble savage in the, in the book, Queequeg is the most noble of savages. He's, like, he both... Is Will it when he's insulted by an, a racist asshole on on a boat that they're, you know, going to get to Nantucket via, he like literally tosses the guy in the air and uppercuts him like he's air juggling him on the way down to knock to <laughs> 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 it rules. And then when someone else falls overboard into icy midwinter water, Queequeg immediately dives overboard, swims to the guy, grabs him and like pulls him back and saves his life, and everyone's immediately like holy shit, you're alive? And also you saved that guy, but you're alive? Queequeg is this ridiculous (laughs) physical paragon. And, you know, that's not unracist. But it's also really intensely the case that the character of Queequeg in the books is this, like, man of few words who is, like, extremely morally upright despite having these, you know, practices and these, you know, the fact that he's pagan. He's, like, absurdly overly pagan, the way the book constructs it. He has a little idol that he sacrifices bits of bread to. He has, you know, his special, you know, religious uh, observances. He has these tattoos. And yet, at the same time, he's a very decent person. His response to Ishmael being, like, worried about him is, I I don't want to share a bed either, but we're both stuck here, so here— you can you can smoke on my pipe too, and Ishmael's like I, I I'm not super f- fond of smoking in bed because of fires. And Queequeg assures him, no, I'll I'll put it out. And that's how they meet. It's like Queequeg's not immediately like I need to explain to you why actually you're being racist about cannibalism. Queequeg's like I want to get sleep too, and you seem fine. Yeah. It's something that really bothers me about this is that. Not to put too fine a point on it, Queequeg has been completely vacated of his original character in the book. A character that, for all that it has, a ton of racist stuff going on is beloved, is one of the reasons why people look at Moby Dick and say, okay, yeah, this is racist, but there's still something there. And Queequeg's relationship to Ishmael is painted as this, like, really deeply emotionally meaningful thing that frankly, often feels like Melville is, yeah, putting a lot of emotions about how he feels two men should be able to relate to each other into. And Queequeg is allowed to be kind of goofy sometimes, like the bit where he uses his harpoon to reach across the table at breakfast to get food, and everyone's <laughs> like, ah, ah, But, you know, apparently harpooners do this sort of thing. Queequeg is a fully realized character. He is both comic and serious, and also quite racist. Here... here
1: Here.
4: i think they trade the racism out
0: yeah yeah they
4: they returned it at the store and got new races yeah Um, i think
0: that's kind of true especially one thing that i want to mention is all of this stuff about the precise type of cannibalism that queequeg's people practice um like the the claim in this comic song is that queequeg's cannibalism is Of the sort where-
2: It's endo-necro-cannibalism. It is within your community group and only of those who have died for other reasons. Yeah,
0: so you're not, like, slaughtering people to eat them like pigs. You're, uh, you know, uh, it's part of a funerary practice. Yes. And then Mm -hmm. he also mentions the idea of this as a way of dealing with the bodies of, like, enemy uh, peoples who you've killed in war.
2: Yeah, I want to point out this- Song is much more okay with the idea of eating someone you've killed in war as, like, not wasteful than it is with the idea of, oh, by the way, sometimes you will have a war and you'll kill other people. That's glossed over super
0: fast. (laughs) Yes, but, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the thing is, in the novel, Queequeg is a cartoon cannibal. Yes. His society Mm -hmm. totally does just treat human beings like animals to be slaughtered well,
2: if you feel like it's, it. it's it's presented in a very com- comedic way where it's like oh yes we have some people that are being you know fattened up for important feasts that sort of a thing it's it's an arrangement uh it's not presented as being like super grim and terrifying because it's being presented as kind of cartoonish
0: one moment that i think actually really speaks to this even though it's not technically about eating people oh right is the that putstools. yeah quick talks about there being people in his like homeland who are Like, specifically, like, fattened up to be furniture, to be sat on. And it's so silly and stupid, but it's also, like, yeah, literally humans are, like...
2: Being used as objects.
0: Yeah, and that's just what his people are, like...
2: Yeah, and... Queequeg is not presented as being like, here's the ethical case for why you should be okay with my culture's practices. He just brings them up as a joke because it's like, or it's like a, like, oh, here's a funny story from this one time that there was like uh, a white missionary among my people. Uh, it was very funny. He misunderstood how to eat things. And by the way, uh, my dad's footstool got in trouble. It's like, it's super cartoony, but it's not presented as him making an argument for it. The argument for Queequeg is his behavior, his personal dignity, not a, you know, the fact that he can immediately rattle off terms that you learn in college in your first year of trying to be less racist.
4: I, and I think it, it, it's, it makes it, it sh, Malloy shoots the whole concept of the song in the foot too, because it's such a comedy song because Mm -hmm. it's hard not to read it as also kind of making fun of the concept of what Queequeg is doing
0: yeah Yeah. like it doesn't like it's it it does not feel like this is a genuine respectful treatment of the mm -hmm. like real and in some sense perfectly harmless traditions of like necro cannibalism that that really have existed in the world um, it does not actually feel like a respectful discussion of like Pacific Islander historical cultures.
2: Yeah. Also we should probably mention that they did not cast a Pacific Islander for Queequeg. Nope. Mm-hmm.
0: Nope. Uh the actor is is Thai American. Um And and this is actually uh I would say with all three harpooners there's a weird thing where they are clearly cast as like someone who is, in some sense, racially like the original character, but also, like, not quite. Um, mm-hmm. Like, uh, so, so Kwee Kweg, who is a vaguely and and purposefully vaguely defined Pacific Islander in the novel, um, cast as a Thai-American. I think, obviously, the concept here is that... Uh,
2: for- it, it was close enough for Melville, so it's close enough here.
0: Right. Well, also, I mm-hmm. think this is mobilizing the idea of, like, Asian American Pacific Islander, right? That's, like, a modern Mm -hmm. concept. Um, And I think that's
2: why... A pan-ethnic racial categorization.
0: Exactly. Um, uh, Tashtego is cast as, um, like, a a Native American or, um, like, someone who has that background, but from the West Coast, not a uh, Wampanoag, um, which... You know, I'm really not trying to split the hairs here and be like, oh, they should have. If they didn't get a person from the very precise, like, ethnic category, they're doing it wrong. Um, but, like... It's,
2: it's just weird, and on some level, it's just sort of, this was a problem that was always going to come up if you tried to do Moby Dick this way. And comment on it this way. And there doesn't seem... The, the close enough is good enough thing doesn't seem to hold for other stuff that the musical thinks. So it's it's mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. Anyways, uh and I
4: think I I have one more thing which is yeah. I quick quick here is admittedly this is going to be a bit of a tangent but I I was born and grew up in Hawaii which is mm-hmm. in a Pacific island it's within yeah. this yes. area and it's mm. hard for me to not notice that in taking this role from an extremely racist but very rooted in this I mean, Que Craig is this powerful, perfect man, noble savage. In making it comedic, is now an Asian American man being cast in it. A lot of the the big skirt flanks kind of flanks and shrinks the actor. Mm. He's kind of this small, bouncy. He's very rare. He rarely seems to be, you know, impressive. Rare. He doesn't seem to be impressive, and it, that sit doesn't sit very well with me, I yeah, think. Yeah,
2: there's a... Compared
4: there's... to, sort of, you know, and it's also, I'm looking at it, I'm trying to imagine how this would all play had you cast, you know, had you cast Dwayne The Rock someone, Johnson. Like, yeah,
0: cast... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say,
4: if you cast a oh Samoan guy. Yeah. Like, you know, like...
0: Yeah, I, I think... You know,
4: if you cast my friends, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's...
0: Something else that I noticed, I don't think this musical once mentions that Queequeg is royalty. Yeah. That's a huge no. deal in the novel.
2: Yeah, that's a major part of his character. Again, Queequeg in the novel is this, like, like he is... I mean, okay, I think it is fair to say that both the musical and the novel cast Queequeg as Ishmael's, like, cool boyfriend in a certain way. But the way <laughs> that his cool boyfriendness works out in... The novel is that he's this, like, masculine paragon who is sort of communicating, hey, masculine paragons don't have to be white. And in fact, being non-Christian means you have this, like, real virality, this real, like, life mm-hmm. energy going. Literally, in the um in the novel, when Queequeg is sick, which will happen much later in the musical, he literally just decides to get better, and he does. Like, he thinks he's gonna die, he's feverish, <laughs> and then he's like, wait, no, I still have some moral, like, I still have some, like, personal things I need to do on land. I guess I'll get better. And then he just force of wills himself and says, in fact, explicitly, oh, yeah, no, anyone can do this. If you're strong-willed, it is impossible to kill you with illness unless you give in to it. Um,
3: it's the secret. It's, yes. It's the secret,
2: <laughs> yes. but only if you're extremely buff. And yeah, and he just gets up and walks that off. It's... Queequeg is hilariously, overstatedly alive and powerful and strong. Again, he air juggles a man. He (laughs) swims through icy water. He, um... When there are situations, whaling, that stress him out and are, like, challenges, it's explicitly because the kind of physical toll whaling takes on you is beyond what a human being can reasonably be expected to deal with, and even then he does manage it. Queequeg is, like... Ishmael is, like, could absolutely be bridal-carried by Queequeg for, like, seven city blocks. It's very clear Mm -hmm. what kind of paragon Queequeg is supposed to be as part of establishing this relationship. And then the musical Queequeg is... He's someone that you're straight-laced, white, but actually very, very interested in men. College student, leaving a small town for the first time like, meets, and is racist too, and the uh, non-white person he's meeting at uh, college is like, actually, let me educate you, and completely turns him mm-hmm. around and manages to get him into anti-racism in this, like, weird, idealized way that, as has been pointed out, really involves a lot of what is, frankly, the kind of feminization of Asian Americans that appears mm-hmm. in a lot of, like, racist mm-hmm. depictions of Asian American masculinity. I think... Yeah. It-
4: the earlier comment on the skirt goes into me, like, comes in with me, because I admittedly, it of, to me, I know it's drawing on some certain, you know, it's drawing on fashions I've seen.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: But it's also tool. It's, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a skirt made for bouncing around on stage rather than for covering. You know, for covering that area of yeah, your body yeah. as a person. Yeah. Covering like. your mighty
2: harpoon.
0: <laughs> I Yeah, also, yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to mention something, and I do not mean this in any way as a criticism of the actor. Um but I wanna talk a little bit about how Andrew Christie, the actor who plays Queekwag, mm-hmm. uh portrays himself on his like official website, right? Like the
2: Do we just wanna send the link?
0: Uh yeah, I, I, I I'll send them the link, but I think I should also just um like yep. describe on the air what what. Oh like, yeah, I want
2: I want them Christy's, to see it then get the description. You know, I can Christy's send like, it. I have it. You have it's it. Fantastic. Okay, yeah. So
0: Christie's like publicity image, which is like the entire background of his website when you look at it. Um, he is lying sideways on pink satin sheets, holding a heart shaped lollipop, and there is a neon rainbow behind him, and he looks like he's giggling. I would say.
2: He's at least smiling, and, like, it's very it's very light and fluffy.
0: I would describe this image as impish. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's a great thing for an actor to be, if that's how he wants to be. But it is a bizarre take for Queequeg.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's really... How do I put this? It The musical obviously wants Queequeg to be a gay icon. Yes. But the way mm-hmm. it's doing it is... Very, um, I mean, we mentioned 2014 Tumblr earlier.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and that's, that's a real, it is a decision to make. And like, here's the thing. I can imagine a completely like, a very focused camp Moby Dick that is all about like Ishmael as discovering oh his sexuality.
0: Ben, you need to look at this image not oh. only because of how Queequeg is posed, but look how Ishmael is looking at him.
2: yeah. Yeah, there's. Oh, and there's. That's that's how the tattoos are being done. Yep. Um. Oh, anyways, I'm I'm rapidly running out of the emotional capacity to handle uh bosom friends. So we should. I would <laughs> love to hear any further thoughts people have on it. Yeah. Oh.
3: Yeah. No. I'm mostly I'm just struck by the fact that sort of any sort of you know version of nobility that Melville was trying to give Queekwick was just entirely stripped away. Just, I mean, because, like, I feel like when you look at, especially, like, a lot of older texts, and you're like, this is extremely racist in a very specific way, but I can see the way they were trying to humanize these people of color. Yeah, yeah. And it's, like... Even that attempt is just entirely taken out. Yeah, and and I, I'm just sort of struck by like, so this is the thing. This is your fixed Queequeg. Yeah, this, this is, is this is the fixed version. This is is woke
2: Queequeg. This is yeah. this is woke. This is what happens if you completely scoop Queequeg out and then attempt to fill the void with your sort of maximally fun like yeah, liberal idea of what it means to be a gay man in a way that ends up really stereotypical. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm really struck by the exchange in this song where Ishmael says, why, you're just as much a human as me. And Queequeg's response is, so fucking funny. So fucking Marvel movie core. Uh, Um, yeah. yeah." (laughs) And it's like, I get why the show is like, wow, isn't it so stupid that Ishmael had to go through all this effort to realize that Queequeg is a human, but like... The humanism is, like, the fucking core of the novel. The idea of, like, all of these people, some of whom are absurd racist caricatures, are humans, is, like, you It's know. important. Yeah. It's important to the text.
2: And also, the initial appearance of Queequeg in the novel is, like, in a dark room, he's got these weird tattoos. Ishmael does respond racistly, but he's handling this within a scene in the novel. He's like, oh, you know, he he actually seems quite human after all. I can, you know, I can sleep in a bed with him and by the next morning and, like, a day later they're married. Like, it's... <laughs> it is genuinely... It's a meat cute in a lot of ways. Um, it is mm-hmm. this moment of human connection that frankly has been replaced by really... Uh, by, like, hectoring. The way Queequeg comes across here is just like the narrator, the, the playwright, is just trying to be like, okay, you need to know these this information, and that's how you fix people. You fix people by turning your minority character into a spigot of information for the white character. Mm-hmm. They'll be sarcastic and roll their eyes, but the way the white character is fixed is purely information-based. It's purely and fixing their ignorance.
4: I want to squeeze out one more thing mm-hmm. from bosom friend, which is, I really just want to to bring back in that Ishmael's still just some guy.
0: Yes.
2: Yeah.
4: He's still, like, you've now seen the picture. He's wearing his, like...
0: He's wearing, like, a hoodie.
4: He's, like... Yeah, he's wearing his, like, hoodie and his, um... His, like, H&M jacket. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a blue jacket with, like, pockets on the front. It wasn't a jean jacket, I remember that, but it's the canvas. And so... There's this weird, like, it's just kind of a weird, it makes this a lot more feel like a sermon to the audience. Yes. Just yeah, The yeah. audience for being so
2: racist, racist about, about
4: Quee Quag and cannibalism, and you're like, I... I don't go here.
3: And it's very much making that assumption of like what the audience is. Yes. It's that sort of idea of like mm-hmm. when stuff about people of color, when art about people of color is created, who is it for? Is this for the white audience or is this for like for us, you know? Yeah. And and this is very much, you know, assuming this audience is entirely white. The only people watching this will mm-hmm. be white people, but they need to be made felt better about their own opinions about race. So we're putting that in here. too. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely wild to me that, like,
0: the way that this Ishmael falls in love with this Queequeg is by being... Lectured about his own racism And he's enamored with that He loves being lectured about his own racism And you know who I also bet Loves being lectured about his own racism No 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 no, no. Say it It's Dave Malloy Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like Jesus Frankly I could make this much worse If I were to kind of draw out The sexual implications About what it might mean to love to be lectured About how bad you are but like We don't even need to go there. Please (laughs) don't. I beg you.
2: Have mercy. Uh, But yeah, it's... uh, Also, so it ends with a line... I think one of the only lines from the actual book that is in this piece is the ending where it's like, Better sleep with a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian. And... The context of this is very... It's different in the book, both because Queequeg is just a straight-up different character, but also Ishmael has been stumbling his way through frozen streets and misery and into this kind of, like, dingy whaler's inn and has ended up in this bedroom with someone he doesn't even know, both of whom are upset about it. And briefly, Queequeg thought Ishmael might be trying to rob him and, like, threatens to hurt him, and obviously Ishmael, like, does, like, a Shaggy from Scooby-Doo jump up into the arms of the inn proprietor, going, Help! Um, and meanwhile, <laughs> Queequeg is also going, Hey, hey, why is this guy here? I thought I was paying for a room. But when it's all explained, Queequeg goes, Well, okay, fine. Here, you know, I I shouldn't have threatened to kill you. Here's my—you know, you want to smoke with me? And Ishmael sort of goes— I get to sleep in a bed. You know what? That's great. I get to, like, um, you know, he's not a drunkard. He's not going to behave erratically. Now that it's been explained, he's totally reasonable. I don't actually think him being a cannibal, which is not being presented as a good thing. We're not being being told that cultural relativism means it's all fine. Just... Mm -hmm. It doesn't Mm -hmm. change the fact that he can be a good person, that he's so totally separate from what I consider to be basic civilization and moral impetus and so on. And very briefly, because I didn't actually say this, I have a problem with the concept of cultural relativism, not because I'm not a weak cultural relativist in the sense that I don't think that any culture has a uniform claim on ethics— but I don't think anyone genuinely believes, yeah, if that culture over there, let's say, uh, white Southerners who believe that the Confederacy should have won and have been brought up in that, if they think it's okay to murder people to bring that back, I can try and stop them, but I can't disagree with their cultural dedication. People only say cultural relativism when they mean, actually, according to my more enlightened liberal ethics, this is still a good thing. Like, this is not actually inherently harmful. But it gets used to sort of be like, you find this idea squicky. You just still have this sort of moral dedication. Queequeg declares himself a cultural relativist, and I just don't think that's (laughs) Queequeg.
0: Yeah, I would say that um, in the novel, Ishmael is way closer to being a cultural relativist than Queequeg. There's literally a scene where um, Queequeg, the chapter's called The Ramadan, which is a Racist There's a from whole Eldreden thing going, going on. But Huygwag is doing some religious observances. And, and so, he's fasting. Yeah, he's fasting and he's like meditating in like a single position all day long. And Ishmael is like, I don't really know what to do about this. Uh, is he going to stop? Is he okay? And- <laughs> yeah,
2: Ishmael's really worried and comes up with all these, like, you know, Ishmael's got his weird theological dedications. He's a universalist. He thinks everyone's going to heaven. He's a um, He thinks that hell was an invention of a bad stomach and dyspepsia, so you, you can't meditate for religion by getting hungry because it'll make you think up things like hell. Queequeg, eat some food!
0: Yeah, and- like, the 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 interaction that he has with Queequeg around this is very much like, Queequeg, I respect your beliefs, I truly do. I just don't want you to harm yourself, I'm really worried, buddy. And, like, it's it's a funny exchange, and it's also, like, it certainly is, uh, you know, I am not saying that, um...
2: It lacks racism?
0: Yes, because... <laughs> because, because
2: it doesn't. Yeah. Moving on. But, but
0: it's just, like... <laughs> The person who actually expresses that sense of, like, well, I would never judge your religion is Ishmael. Yes. In fact,
2: (laughs) Queequeg just goes on, uh, you know, worshipping before his idol, Yojo, and, you know, getting, you know, sort of spiritual sucker from that, and sort of goes, eh, Christians do their own thing. He wanders out of the sermon while Ishmael stays there to listen to the whole thing. but. Ishmael, who is, you know, he's educated, he's, you know, he's implied to have been the scion of a wealthy family who has been a school teacher at one time, but now is, you know, wandering around uh, with barely a penny to his name because he's a weirdo and sort of doesn't fit in in society, hence why he becomes a whaler. Ishmael goes, "Uh, I probably shouldn't worship at an idol, that's literally one of the commandments, but on the other hand, I think the Christian and brotherly thing to do is to join in with Queequeg here and be supportive. Like, Ishmael is so much of a cultural relativist in his particular weird Ishmael way that he literally thinks through to himself, I think the spirit of my religion justifies breaking one of the ten mosaic laws. Like, (laughs) <laughs> That's just his deal. That's what allows him mm-hmm. to be the narrator he is. And if you take that out of Ishmael and plug it into the space where Queequeg was, you get two non-characters. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh God, I... Okay, guys, um, I think we, we need, to re- need to- we <laughs> need to rescue oh, okay. ourselves from this. All right. I would like to yes. escape from the characterlessness of A Bosom Friend into the... What I think none of us can deny is the... Characterization of Ahab.
2: Yes, Ahab yes, has Ahab. characterization. Oh yeah, I I'll be honest. I like this song as a song. I oh, really yeah. like it's it's a good song. This
0: little the the little like refrain that is the kind of center of the mm-hmm. song, da 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 that rules. It sounds great. It's yeah. like it's really mm-hmm. eerie. Um it's really like simple in terms of language right Because yeah. it's, a, it's a short clip so you can't use really long words on that bit of music and it kind of um i don't know it 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 gives it's this the first
4: reverence
0: yes yes
4: it's the first real reverence the show has shown kind of anything yeah, yeah you're not yeah. wrong
3: that's mm-hmm. a really
2: good point yeah it's
3: because it's it's not detached in that funky, ironic, mm. you're-watching-musical wink-wink way. Yeah, no, this is just... And I think this is something that's true.
0: This is the the sense I got from Ahab's vocal performance and also from the the pictures that I saw of this Ahab. I get the sense that this Ahab is also played quite straight and played with a great deal mm-hmm. of gravitas.
4: Mm-hmm. Would
0: you say that was the case from your perception?
4: Oh, yeah. I, I admittedly paid mo- the most attention to him because... He is uh, he's yeah. he has this a similar vocal range to me, and mm-hmm. so <laughs> oh,
3: <laughs> and, yeah. the, the, and the singer very clearly has like some sort of like classical or yes. operatic yeah. training, yeah. Yeah. and it he comes across. Yeah,
4: and yeah. and also because I feel like they do this, they allow him to have this reverential, almost like holy status, but within the language of a musical, mm-hmm. yeah. like. He his entrance is the first entrance that seems important. He he comes out right. He comes out of his it's like he, does, he enters. I, I,
3: I think he comes out of his like quarters. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: He's, he comes, he's below his in the quarters are on screen and he or on stage. Pardon. And he comes out of that, like you don't see them, but it 's like a trapdoor or a door, yeah, or something. that's
2: really good, yeah,
4: like, which is he's the first person to enter from the pequod, so to speak, mm,
2: yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense, and he enters with the like clunk 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 of the uh, yeah. of the of the mm mm-hmm. leg. leg,
0: yeah, or oh. not wooden leg, sorry ivory leg, but <laughs> yes
2: it's whalebone well not it's not what's called whalebone, it's whale ivory, sorry.
0: Yeah, those are different um, things. Weirdly enough. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you learn a lot
2: about these things when you read Moby Dick.
0: Yeah. Um and and I find the description of Ahab's wounding, right? What happened to him? How he mm-hmm. lost his leg to Moby Dick. Um there there are quibbles I can make with it about how it uses text from the book. Yeah,
2: I'll I'll make those quibbles. I I like this song. It might be my favorite song from the musical, but I do
0: have notes. However, um I think it is very effectively, the, that reverence that you described, it's around Ahab, but it's also around what happens to mm-hmm. Ahab. Mm-hmm. The loss of Ahab's leg is this otherworldly event. And I think that's good.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's... Oh. Yeah.
4: I this... think... Yeah. As you say, you have to take Ahab seriously, if... To take Moby Dick the whale seriously, you have to take Ahab seriously. Yeah. And if neither of those are taken seriously, there's no reason to watch the thing. Yeah. And you know, it's like, just a complicated Russian character. or, like, <laughs> Yeah. If, if, you know, if I would have probably left if it wasn't <laughs> like, remember, like, if, if it was like, oh, wow, I can't, like, oh, yeah, this whale matters.
0: Yeah, yeah. <sighs> now, I do want to say one thing about the way that. Ahab is presented with all this gravitas. Um, Ahab has this more classical singing style. Mm-hmm. Ahab is also played by an older white man. Um, I mm-hmm. believe sure he is. is the only white man on stage. Correct? Tom Nellis uh, is the is I the actor. I think there's. I, mean, there's, I think like there's like, the like a Hamilton white actress.
4: ensemble.
0: Yeah, Mm. but, but so he's certainly, he's definitely the only, um...
2: Major character? Yeah,
0: named character played by a white man. And he's specifically played by an old white man. Yeah. And, on the one hand, I think there's something being purposefully done here, right? Where it's like, ah, everyone else is this kind of remix, whereas our Ahab is... This is this is an Ahab who's not very different from like the Gregory Peck Ahab from the 19, 1956 film. This is an Ahab, this is a traditionalist Ahab and so we have mm-hmm. a traditionalist mm-hmm. casting. But then there's also an element where it's like all of our actors of color are kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Our 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 white actor, our mm-hmm. our our sort of great old man is totally serious. Yeah, I yeah. I think there's
2: some really interesting but not necessarily successful things going on here that relate to some of how I see Ahab functioning in this version of the musical and what this musical is doing overall that I think comes out the most towards the end of the play and i'm going to briefly sort of summarize that i think that ahab gets a really inconsistent portrayal in the sense that on the one hand yes he's very traditional and intense but there's also a choice of some of his speeches later on are the ones that make ahab seem the most uh I mean, basically the most sort of out of touch with reality, the most sort of weird and bizarre. They keep the speech, the kind of comic speech, from the carpenter, where the carpenter's making his leg and Ahab's going on about, I'll make a new man with legs like the Thames Tunnel. And in context, where he's already in a comic context because the carpenter is in kind of a blockhead, literally, that's the joke, and uh, Ahab has already commented on that, and it's in the context of Ahab's existing sort of philosophical issues with the human condition, it works of, it works in a very clear way where it is a more comic moment for Ahab, but it also comes from somewhere. You can see the logic behind his position, whereas I feel like I don't get enough in the musical of Ahab to really say what's driving him beyond just the word revenge.
1: Hmm.
0: I'll, I'll want to keep talking complex. about that as we go on, because there is yeah. quite a bit more Ahab in this show. There
2: is, there is. Um, um, but yeah, and this particular, the introduction of Ahab is, yeah, it's it's reverential, it's intense, it's musically good. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I should maybe mention, I think we kind of made it sound like Ahab sings in the song Ahab. Oh, he doesn't. He doesn't. It's, right. like, it's like the, does the, the ensemble is singing about him and about what happened to him. He does sing in the next song. Yes. Um, Which is also very good, I think. Or or also has a lot of really interesting stuff in it, at least. Um.
2: But, uh, yeah, I—so we did mention that there was some sort of changes from the book in terms of what text is used for communicating this, and some of this is order as well. Ahab's loss of his leg is only really narrated in the chapter Moby Dick, which is chapter 41, significantly after the events of the quarterdeck and a number of other things that occur over the course of the story— And it has this really great description of how Ahab loses his leg. That's not the section they're quoting from here, with the white weasel and and Moby Dick coming up from below. That's from the chase, from the very end of the novel, from... Ahab uh-huh. struggling directly with Moby Dick. Yeah, the events of oh. Ahab losing his leg are, he's surrounded by broken boats in the water, he's standing yeah, on two legs, he has a knife in his hand, and he sees Moby Dick chewing on one of the boats, and he charges the whale to try and, you know, slay it for having destroyed his boats and his men, and the whale just sort of turns to him and scythes off his leg with little thought, and the, or apparently very clear aim, but very little concern, and then swims away and Ahab's loss of the leg there has a number of interesting elements that I think would have worked really well with this musical framing which is, you know, it starts off saying a captain stands in the boat though looking at the wreckage created by Moby Dick. It talks about how the sun is bright and the scene is beautiful and that only makes the carnage more horrible that heaven smiles on what Moby Dick is doing. And then it reveals that this is Ahab. So you could have started with where is Ahab and like the captain stands in the boat and then declare this is Ahab and I think that would have been really cool and there's elements of that here in the song I don't want to just say it missed that entirely, but that mobilization of Ahab's uh, Sort of presence and non-presence in the text is something that I think would have fit this song beautifully Also, I don't like that they end the song with is Ahab Ahab a line from from again the chase that, has a, that is from Ahab's mouth when he says it And that doesn't really have any meaning here It's just sort of portentous And I don't think it ever really gets engaged with As things go on Except maybe in the sense that like Maybe there's a sense of deception about Ahab That his like uh, the, the reverence is somehow unearned or incorrect But I don't know if that's what it's going for Hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Anyways that's my sort of like I think they did some weird things with mixing the text around But it's still a good song
0: yeah I will say much as I do genuinely like this song musically, I do think this is another one of those places where uh just dumping so many chunks of the novel into the lyrics is is bad for the song mm, um uh-huh. i I think that uh it, I think that if Malloy was going to change the text of what what actually happens to Ahab yes, when is attacked. the events
2: of his loss of his life.
0: Then I, I don't understand why he wouldn't simply write his own language here and make it more rhythmic.
2: And also, the weasel metaphor is a cool little thing, but I frankly think that it's not as uh, intense and emotional as it might have been in uh, the era of Moby Dick, primarily because I think it takes people a little longer to think, wait, how large is a weasel? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I genuinely think that makes for the metaphor mm-hmm. slightly more strained. And while in the chase, where a lot of other things are happening, it doesn't matter as much. Here, that's the first visual imagery of Moby Dick. Speaking of which, is there any visual sign of Moby Dick in this scene as they just like what? What is Ahab doing during this song on the stage?
4: I think for a while they're not actually. Ahab is not on at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Ahab like comes out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no, like, this is a comment I have for a lot of it. It takes a lot from Hamilton, but what it does not take is the constant dancing. Yeah. There's very little dancing. And so there's not much happening on stage. Mm, during so this, this is like... It's kind yeah. of a ensemble standing in a line doing a, doing a like,
2: choral thing. Mm. So no one's... Uh, yeah, and that's... Sorry, go
3: on. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, and, like, that's why, I mean, I... I sort of struggle to remember exactly what was on stage mm. because a lot of time, it, not a lot was going on. Yeah. On that, stage.
2: yeah. That's disappointing. Cause like
3: here, yeah.
2: I feel like you could do a lot to sort of focus in on Ahab physically. You could do a lot to like, maybe have someone acting out the events of this song, just describing, you mentioned this with the great comment that there's a lot of like, um, you know and then he said this and then he walked over to the other side of the room being sung by the uh the yeah. by the actors uh whereas here again there's this description of Ahab stands on two legs and everything and that seems like something where you could have someone acting out these events in a way that sort of highlights that Ahab can't do it anymore like Ahab standing on two yeah. legs as an image in the book is a huge deal because Ahab is defined by the fact that he can't, that he is, like, physically disabled by the loss of his leg. He's, um, he's unable to—no one thinks he can go out in a whale boat. That's—we'll we'll get to why that matters with Stubb kills a whale, but, like— it's expected he's just going to stay on the ship and direct from there. He can't climb down the side of a ship on a normal ladder. They have to lower him in a sling. Ahab is constantly reminded that he is no longer capable of acting as a sailor the way he has for 40 years by the physical existence of that peg. And that just doesn't seem to appear at all in the staging or the music? Yeah, it... Mm. Yeah. it.
4: It's... Part of the thing is, yeah, the, you hit it on the head there where people don't move around enough for not being – for any sort of
3: mobility issues
4: yeah. to matter. Yeah. Like, mm. even the – like, you know, even the – uh when we get to the whale boats, like, the whale boats – I'm personally mad about because they said don't get in them if you get seasick, and I wouldn't have gotten seasick in those. <laughs> I get seasick so easily, and I know I would not have been seasick in those. They lied. I oh would have totally God. gotten in them had they been like, oh. yeah, they're going to be on wheel. They're like wagons. They're going to oh. be on wheels oh, and I like wow. putter around the stage.
0: Oh, that's so disappointing. Um,
4: but we can get to that later. yeah. yeah, yeah. What I'm focusing here is at no point do you ever get the... God, the is... actor does a very good job, but he plays it fairly classically he obviously favors one leg he Mm -hmm. is doesn't move much except not many people move much yeah yeah Yeah. so
2: if they're all (laughs) standing around singing the fact that ahab is always standing and singing is completely invisible yeah
3: yeah, that's, like, the, the blocking and directing itself doesn't draw attention to the fact that he can't do what most of his crew can do.
2: Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's, oh, that's such a, that's such a waste. Like, even, even versions of Moby Dick that are not great adaptations, that, like, change Ahab completely and so on, they often, tr- because it's such an easy visual thing, they often draw attention to him having trouble with his leg, you know, not allowing him to do things. There's a very... Uh, A very common thing is the idea that, and this is in the novel, that Ahab has drilled a number of holes in the deck of the Pequod so that he can stand in one place on the Pequod. He literally, like, merges with the ship by sinking his peg into the hole. In the 1926 uh, adaptation The Sea Beast, which is a romance in which uh, Mo- Ahab is just the hero. Uh, he actually wins a fight with his evil twin brother, or stepbrother. Again, just go with it, it's the 20s. Um, by <laughs> sinking his peg leg into a hole so he cannot be thrown over the side of the boat and has a better grip. And the narrative, like, the, his, the dialogue, which it's a silent movie, so it's like a big dialogue panel, and, like, the yeah. visual focus all, like, tell you really loudly, Ah, Ahab has been disabled by this, but the cruelty of his brother that got his leg bitten off is now being repaid by the fact that Ahab can set himself and throw him over. And that's such an easy, cheap thing you can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you do it differently in this musical, but, like, having, like, holes in the deck that Ahab can sink himself into and having motion around him while he remains utterly inert. It would
0: be so, so easy to have, like, a a point on the stage where Ahab basically stand still most of the time and have some little bit, have Ishmael say at some point this thing about the holes drilled in the deck. Yeah. So that people understand that Ahab is on the one hand, like he's standing still because he's completely fixed to his purpose and because like he doesn't need to move because he is the captain and everyone else moves at his order. But that also that this is a Th- that his motionlessness is something that has been, like, specifically crafted for his peg leg, and that it's a strength and a weakness. That would be so yeah. easy to do with stage. Yeah,
2: no, it's... Oh, that is... Yeah. Oof. Oof, oof, oof. But uh, let's get to... Uh, let's get to the quarter deck, now that we've established the ways we both like and are disappointed in the song Ahab.
0: Yeah, so uh, the quarter deck, this is... Um... This is basically the scene that is in the chapter the the quarterdeck in the novel.
2: And uh, is in every adaptation because it's cool.
0: Yeah, where Ahab is basically like, All right, men, uh, my purpose is to hunt Moby Dick. Uh, if you cite him, you'll get this Spanish gold doubloon. Um, and everyone gets super fired up about this plan. And is like, ah, you're hunting Moby Dick? You mean that legendary white whale? Um, and like Starbuck has some kind of objections. Uh, but ultimately, you know, Ahab's... Uh, and he does this ritual, right, with the, with the grog and, and the harpoons. Um, and uh, then there's a party. Um, so all that's in the book, and it's right here in this song. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
3: I guess I do find it, I, because of how much Dave Malloy draws attention to the things he's improving and making more acknowledging of, like, history and stuff, mm-hmm. it's interesting that he maintains the Spanish gold, yeah. Because yeah. that's, uh, it's probably Aztec gold. <laughs> that's yeah. true. My culture is gold. Yeah, yeah so... no, that's very true. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: Spanish gold is a product of a specific colonial uh, extraction that is not in any way referenced here, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, that's
3: not... Yeah, and and I just, like...
0: Oh, sorry. No, you're right. Like, this is... The the Spanish gold doubloon in the novel is playing basically the exact same role that the idea of a gold doubloon does in, like, a pirate story, right? Um, and it does the exact same thing in the, in the show.
3: Yeah. And it's like, and I mean, I I wouldn't have been happy if he acknowledged it, but I'm just, I'm surprised that like, he's trying to draw so much attention to it. And this is just like, you know, nothing here. And in a way I feel like I've dodged a bullet, but also
0: (laughs) it's, yeah. Imagine if, if fucking imagine if, if, I don't know, Ishmael had like turned to the audience and like explained like, uh, you know, The history gold... of the
2: Spanish Empire. Yeah, fucking,
0: it, like, <laughs> gold mining in... What is it? Ecuador? Is that where the coin comes from? I, I forget. Think it's
2: it's Quito. I think it's Ecuadorian. Yeah, there's a specific gold coin that, in fact, exists in real life that is described in detail in the novel that was, like, would have been printed in... Or minted, sorry. Minted in uh, Ecuador. It has specific imagery on it. It now... There's a Wikipedia page for the Moby Dick coin because...
3: Interesting
2: Yes, so the specific And the reason for this uh, Or part of the reason As I understand it Is that in the novel There's a scene That is not in the musical at all So I'll be very brief with it Where Ahab, Starbuck uh, Stub, Flask, and Ishmael oh, and I,
0: Other people too Oh yeah, and the um, ma- Queequeg Yeah, uh, a ton
2: of characters All go up to the doubloon where it's nailed to the mast and think about so what are the this is such an important object. It like symbolizes the oath to destroy Moby Dick and the gear and sort of the guarantee that we will follow this through. What do the symbols on it mean? There's a mountain, there's a sun, there's all these things. What does all that mean? And so by using a real coin, he's established this real physical set of imagery that would have been like and you can now find that object and look at it just as you could can in the book. And Uh, as just as the characters do in the book, and interpret it. And Ahab's uh, hermeneutic for interpreting a gold coin and its imagery is totally different from Starbucks, is totally different from Stubbs, is totally different from Queequegs and Ishmaels and all of them. And so the chapter becomes this really interesting meditation on symbolism as a concept, which, given Moby Dick as a book, is like, (laughs) you want symbols? It's... It is, in fact, metafictional, or at least metatextual. It is thinking about itself and talking about some of the things it's doing, but in a way that's so much less obnoxious than anything this musical does. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, something I want to note um, is that, so the... Both of... There are two acts this musical. Each of them is divided into two parts, and each part of the acts has, like, a a title.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, And the title of the part that we are currently in, the first half of the first act, is... The doubloon,
1: mm. um, which is mm-hmm.
0: the name of the chapter, right, where all that interpretation of yeah, the doubloon happens. Yeah, which happens
2: way later in the novel.
0: Yeah, um, so the this idea that, like, there's this section where everyone interprets the doubloon, like, I would... There's a part of me that's like, eh, can't blame him for not putting in the show. Yeah, it's I like, a, it's not exactly plot important or anything, but at the same time, he named the section after it. yeah 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 i
2: d- I don't know what he's doing with that one i don't I don't really have a sense of the doubloon. maybe it'll come out as we as we get through the musical, but I don't have a sense for how he's using it, except as' just literally the way it gets used in the book on its most basic level of and this is the thing that convinces the crew to go along with Ahab other than ahab's intense charisma, magnetic personality, and theological weirdness um also the <laughs> mm-hmm. fact that he's captain, which means he has straightforward authority over the ship and the crew um but yeah, no, here is the, um... Here's the bit where, uh... You know, we get the two, What tune is it you pull two men? A dead whale or a stove boat? And we also get, uh... I honestly really like the bit where Ahab, like, describes... Whosoever, if he raises me a white whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw and goes through that. And then the Harpeneers, as they do in the novel, respond... Do you mean Moby Dick? Uh... And, uh... I really love the uh, the legendary awesome deadly omnipresent immortal white whale. I just like that. Mm-hmm. I
0: love the line yeah. where uh Queequeg says about Moby Dick, I know this white whale too, he destroys and devours, he kills and he hunts and then all the Harpeneers, and he lives in all places at all times at once. A fucking rhyme, some rhythm. Oh my, my god. god. Magic. Oh, yeah. And Whoa. and it is actually expressing one of like the important and bizarre like quasi-supernatural qualities that Moby Dick has in the novel, which is omnipresence. Like, there's a discussion of how at least there's a belief, and Ishmael kind of presents it in an ambiguous way. It's not totally clear whether Ishmael literally believes this is the case. But there is a legend that Moby Dick can exist In all places at once. that
2: he has been seen at the same time by ships on opposite sides of the world. That he is either capable of traveling far faster and further than a whale should be, or that there is literally no limit to Moby Dick's specific location as, like, in time and space, so that he is both— and he's also believed to be ancient and possibly, uh, and, you know, no one believes he'll die of old age, so he is both eternal and omnipresent as God. Uh, this is a big deal for, the like, description of why Moby Dick has this, like, intense, like, meaning in the text. And as a very brief aside, uh, Moby Dick is partially based off of Mocha Dick, an actual white whale that was known for, uh, being, um— just known in an area and ultimately was killed by whalers. But before that, there were multiple attempts made on Mokadik's life, uh, which apparently, supposedly, Mokadik would swim happily near a boat but as soon or a ship, but as soon as you tried to go after it, it would um, aggressively attack your boats and cunningly defend itself and then escape. And that's why it was such a big deal. And obviously, Moby Dick is that blown up to a massive mythological proportion. <sighs> So that's, that's where a lot of this, like, frankly, really cool verbiage comes from. Mm-hmm.
0: Ah. Um, I'm a little curious how certain elements of this scene came across to the two of you. Uh, such as, like, um, when Starbuck and Ahab have this discussion, right? So so Starbuck objects a little bit. Um, you know, he, he asks, mm-hmm. uh, like... He asks Ahab, "How many barrels will thy vengeance yield in our Nantucket market?" So, like, this is this is worthless to me. I'm I'm here to get whale oil. I'm not here to get your revenge. Um, and and he calls he calls Ahab's desire for revenge blasphemous. And then Ahab answers with this little speech: "All living things are but pasteboard masks." How did that come across to you, too? What did this What did this mean? Yeah,
3: I. Oh, you go, you go.
4: I think the first thing is that this is. I'm I'm bringing this up now because it'll become because we'll talk about it later. Mm -hmm. But there was an intense and fairly obvious, or seemed to be some amount of both similarity, like, um, Starbuck. The actor who played Starbuck very much mirrored Ahab in a lot of ways. They were both a lot more still and authoritative and, A, Starbuck seemed older than all the other mates Mm -hmm. by a large degree, just by performance and stuff. And so these scenes were both very intimate and kind of seemed to rely on this chemistry they'd made between, Mm -hmm. like, it was very like we're going to the side, everyone else is losing it. Because this is this was a really good scene because they were dancing, they were excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I understood why I was looking at it, and they go off to the side, and Starbuck very like. It it's a very much like I'm not you know I won't bring this up in public. I won't bring mm. this up like, but you and I were friends. Yeah. Even if the you know don't say there's nothing indicating that they're friends, but they're very much set apart together from the rest of the crew as much as ahab is set apart just because ahab
2: yeah no that's that's really cool actually i really like that they they kept this although you know we'll talk about the the torque song stuff later um because starbuck (laughs) and ahab do have a close relationship in the novel they've sailed before together um they have they've known each other they've both grown you know they're both nantucket whalers of great renown they're both
0: nantucket quakers
2: yeah they're both nantucket quakers Mm -hmm. they're they're literally co-religionists and uh Starbuck consistently tries to make these appeals to Ahab's, like, common sense, uh, his, like, moral and religious convictions, his uh, fiduciary responsibilities towards the crew and the mission and the owners of the boat. All these things that he's like, "No, no, Ahab, you and I, we both sailed this. We both, you know, hunt whales. This isn't how things are done. Come on, come away with me. And we do get returns to that in the musical, and it's definitely present. It's really honestly heartening to hear that that was... Visually presented that this relationship was like clearly communicated in a way that like mm-hmm. the Queequeg-Ishmael relationship is just totally botched.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and- yeah, like I I will say like consistently in the musical one of the most interesting things to follow was sort of Starbuck and uh, Ahab's mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. That was like mm-hmm. that's that's the part that stood out to me from this song because. I just remember sitting there just waiting and praying for this song to be over soon. Oh! And like the only, the only moment that grabbed my attention was sort of this little aside mm-hmm. that they had. Cause aside from that, it was just, it was just, it was, it was a lot. It
4: was long. It was and, very long. And it was,
3: it's so long. And yeah. it was like, I, that's so, yeah, just, I guess this is just like a testament to how good the Starbuck Ahab stuff is that that was what got my attention yeah Yeah.
2: absolutely yeah it does seem as though a lot of this song is really repeating you know it's bangers from the book it's things like lines and bits (laughs) of the novel that are just you read them and they're absolutely fantastic there's
0: you know something i will say something i think this song makes very clear but that i think also has been evident throughout this whole thing dave malloy is not lying when he says this is his favorite book this is a guy who's obsessed with moby dick (laughs) even to the point that like the thing is you mentioned being kind of bored with the scene and wanting it to end. And that makes me a little sad because for me, I'm like, ah, oh, the quarter deck. It's so exciting. It's so important. Yeah, but I,
2: I enjoyed the song too.
0: That's because I'm a Moby Dick nerd, right? Yeah, and so yeah. I know the quarter deck. And so it's like me going into any Moby Dick adaptation, I'm like, ah, how are they going to do the quarter deck? Which parts are they going to include? Yeah. And yeah. so. To hear that what's happening here is, in some sense, like... Boring? Moby Dick fan service that's boring Ooh. if you haven't come with that context. That's like, oh man, that's sad. Yeah, that's a real...
3: I mean, I I will fully say this, because I mean, like, I... I do like what this song is doing for the musical and what it's like, what it's meant to represent. It was I guess I was waiting for two paper mostly because musically I wasn't yeah. there. Like yeah, lyrics wise, yeah. like it's got it's got stuff. But, it's, but, but I but no, you're right. I can't listen to it. This li- yeah. These
2: lyrics they're not they're not song lyrics. They're novel text, and they're being forced to do double duty in a way that yeah, I'm I'm not shocked, but I am saddened that like. The, the prose does not—unless you're really, like, the kind of person who can almost, like, chant along with uh, a lot of the prose here, which Mark and I are. The quarterdeck is a scene we care about a lot. Uh, we talked about it a lot on the podcast. Um, I can really see how, musically, there's a few things in it where I—even I was sort of like, okay, g- get on with it. You're going to say Moby Dick now, then you're going to say <laughs> Moby Dick again, and then we're going to get more lyrics from the actual quarterdeck. It's cool to hear the emotion in the voice, but this is taking a while. And but for me, that sort of immediately glossed over with, uh, "Holy shit, it's the quarter deck."
0: I can't. <laughs> why on earth was this not just a play?
2: I mean, because
0: because Dave Malloy writes musicals. It's just so weird. It's not like he's not allowed to write a play without songs. I mean,
2: can we b- bar him? Can we stop him? Uh, but I'm
0: not necessarily saying it would have been good it if it be was a play. <laughs> it's just like, it's so strange that it's so unmusical. Yeah, I... Yeah,
2: I... There's also, there's all these little changes to the text that I think also you know, a lot of... There's this this speech Ahab gives, the the little lower layer that he gives to Starbuck to try and be like... Well, that's
0: not in here. The little lower layer... The, the
2: line isn't, but the phrase, all living things but pasteboard mass." Yes, yes. I just mean from our, that speech.
0: Our, our, our guests don't know what you're talking about fair, when you say fair, little fair, lower yes. layer.
2: There's, there's a speech that... Ahab does sort of take Starbuck aside and he's like, look, you know, the crew are with me, but you need a little bit more of a subtle description. Listen, I'm going to kill God. Like, he doesn't necessarily say it <laughs> like an anime character... But he does say, look, all living things are but pasteboard masks. There's a real thing behind that that is the cause of all my misery and all human misery. And I want to—if I'm going to strike, I'm going to strike through the mask. The prisoner cannot touch the—like, cannot reach outside the prison except where the wall is closest to them. To me, Moby Dick is that wall. He's saying, I think Moby Dick represents either symbolically or literally like God or the world or some weird combination of ideas, and I am going to kill Moby Dick because that whale represents everything. That whale is everything— And I hate the whale specifically, so even if it's not, even if it is just on its own an evil whale, I'm going to fucking kill it. Like, this is (laughs) Ahab explaining his logic behind why he thinks it makes sense to have revenge on a whale. And I—I'll be honest, I don't think the musical is that interested in Moby Dick as a figure other than as a unifying thing. There's not—we—like, this idea of dishonor and unreason—dishonor and reason lying underneath— I, I don't understand what he means by dishonor lying underneath the mask. Like the idea that your shame is is behind the mask, your your shame in your mind. It's unclear, and it being music lyrics makes it even less clear. And so, it's it's uh, it's Moby Dick flavored. Was
4: say if Moby Dick <laughs> is America, though.
0: Yeah, like the the thing I think that's <laughs> weird about this this uh, this thing is like something that. You know, I mentioned when Ben and I come to an adaptation, when we come to the way the quarterdeck is treated, there's certain things in, in our minds where we're like, ah, oh, are they going to do X, Y, Z? And pasteboard masks is one of the things that I think the two of us are excited to see because it is often cut. And I think the reason it's often cut is that it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> because Ahab is making all these claims about what the white whale is, but he's also not stating them that clearly, mm-hmm. in part because of like, what he's trying to do, talking to Starbuck. Like, he's not trying to straight up say to Starbuck, hey, I believe that God is evil and personally punished me, so I'm gonna fight back. Because he kind of knows on some level that if he actually straight up said that to Starbuck, he'd have a mutiny on his hands. Yeah,
2: Starbuck is very religious and very... Starbuck is the ideal like Nantucket man. He's religious, he is obedient to his captain, he's loyal to his ca- to his investors. He wants to see them make money. He doesn't want people to die in glory on a whaleboat because whales are just dumb brutes. He want he doesn't hate them. He doesn't really care about them except because they are part of the Protestant work ethic. <laughs> and mm-hmm.
0: okay, so the pasteboard masks speech. It's doing this complicated layered <laughs> thematic thing. It's hard to make it work, I think, unless you are really going all in on the, is the white whale maybe God or maybe the devil stuff.
2: Yeah, or like, is Ahab correct? How is, what is Ahab's, like, mind here? What does he think he's doing?
0: And this adaptation is putting in all the pasteboard mask stuff, but it's not...
2: Communicating?
0: Yeah, it's not giving you context. And in particular, I think the dishonor and reason lying underneath line is a weird thing here because... The thing it's quoting from the book is uh, Ahab describes, he's talking about the idea that all visible things are pasteboard masks. And he says that behind everything, uh, behind everything, some unknown but still reasonable thing. Still
2: reasoning. Still
0: reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. So what he's saying is... Nature, like, this whale, is an unreasoning mask. It doesn't have a mind, but behind it is some kind of reasoning thing.
2: Yes, it appears Mm. that Moby Dick does not have, like, sapience, is not thinking, and therefore the idea of revenge on it is ridiculous because it's just a whale. But actually, deeper, on a lower layer... There is a reason, there is a thinking entity that you can take revenge on. There is something that is driving, that drives the whale and that now I am, like, responding to. And that's why, actually, my desire for revenge on a whale is extremely rational and intelligent and (laughs) important philosophically.
0: Anyway, like... The words of that are here, but none of this idea is here. You have no way of knowing when you're watching this show what he means by reason lying underneath,
4: yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. and and that's just because that's not just because my ears aren't friends with my brain sometimes so I didn't even hear that line so no (laughs) no no, it's it's just like yeah
2: I mean also frankly I think that if you're going to do lines like that in the middle of a big musical number with lots going on you have to accept that people aren't going to hear precisely the words you say and like Mm -hmm. that makes it like this is a thing I've noticed in musicals where it's like you kind of do have to read the lyrics along with it to catch a lot of stuff when you have like Seven different things going on on stage, and to some extent, I accept that as a, a a prob a a an inescapable quality of musicals. And I'm sure there are ways to theatrically make it clearer that are not being used here. <laughs>
3: Yeah, like, I, I remember hearing, so when, when Stephen Sondheim died, I remember reading an article about him where one thing he always complained about in West Side Story or, like, America, how there's a line where it's like, like, for a small fee in America, and he said that people just never heard the for a small fee as part of a joke that he was building up to, and it just, like, he said, like, it's always pissed him off, and it just, like, that's, you know, Dave Malloy doesn't have such concerns, clearly.
2: <laughs> no, because he's... Not writing the words really. He's adapting them (laughs) from Moby Dick, and so if you don't hear all of them, you can just go read the novel, and it'll shore up his musical. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh. And uh, we haven't even mentioned the like dance party that this ends with. Um, I don't really know if I have anything to say about it, honestly. Uh, I. That's the part
3: that I was waiting to be over the most. Yeah,
4: they 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 say white a lot. Oh yeah, they want you to know that the light is white while they dance. Um, how many times? White, 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 white whale. I think it's absolutely
0: criminal that this show underlines the whiteness of the whale so much, but doesn't include anything from the fucking chapter that is about the whiteness of the whale that would actually make any of that mean anything. The
2: chapter that is called the whiteness of the whale
0: oh my god (laughs) literally literally there's a point in the novel where ishmael is like look i want to try to explain to you what moby dick means to me and so in order to explain that i'm going to have to try to talk about what i think whiteness is symbolically and like it would be really, really hard to do this in a musical because it's so verbal and it's so abstract. So I'm not necessarily saying, ah, they should have put this in the show, it belongs in a musical, but what I am saying is that if you aren't going to put that, like, complicated and, like, deeply ambiguous meditation on the meaning of whiteness as imagery, you can't also do this.
2: I mean, okay. Yeah. I will take the position that if you hard veered and were just like, no, look, the whale is whiteness. Moby Dick represents the whiteness and that is why it sinks America because I
0: think that's kind of like whiteness, racial whiteness. Yes
2: exactly that white supremacy is Moby Dick the boat goes down because white supremacy destroyed it but you can't do the way they do whales in the musical and do that. You can't make the whale a metaphor for white supremacy and also talk about environmentalism because that makes it sound like you're saying that environmentally we can't kill white supremacy because it's bad. Yeah. It's it's such a mixed metaphor, and you could do something with the confusion of metaphors and the ambiguity of whiteness and like what what does this really mean? But this musical doesn't do that. It that, that would be a real reckoning. Um <laughs> and And so the the whiteness of the whale as a chapter is also really important because one of the qualities of Ishmael as a narrator of the book is that he is bad at communicating in some very fundamental ways. He is weird and overeducated and is trying really hard to make you understand, no, listen, the whale was horrible, both because it was huge and killed people, but also because it was white. Um, I can't explain why. <laughs> like, he is trying so hard to make you understand this experience of whiteness, and we'll get into this with cytology. A major thesis of the book is that the whale is a whale. Any whale is unknowable. They are huge creatures that live in a world we just cannot get to. They swim among things that we cannot understand. They don't speak. They don't really make a noise. So, except for, like, you know, those various noises we can't interpret. They don't, like, shout or scream or anything like that. And so, whales are a mystery. They have this mysteriousness. In Moby Dick, most of all of them, the ocean is mysterious. Every, there are so many important things that Ishmael just has to circle around again and again to just try and communicate without ever being able to put them into words. And frankly, if you wanted to do a queerness-focused Moby Dick, the idea that this is a relationship that cannot be spoken in certain societies would work really well with that. But none of that is coming through here. Everything is speakable in this version of Moby Dick.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Too much is speakable. We wish that maybe they had spoken a little Mm. less. (sighs)
4: yeah yeah it it was it it was being it was speaking for a long time my the chairs were not as comfortable as they needed to be
2: for that (laughs)
0: oh man yeah oh yeah (laughs) um
2: but yeah i think we've i think we've exhausted the quarter deck yeah
0: yeah let's um let's move on so the next thing in the show is the whale song interlude one um which inconveniently is like I think maybe the only significant thing that's not in the genius lyrics. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Whatever. Um, do we do we want to talk about whale song one and whales and environmentalism and the great plastic patch here, or do we want to wait until we get to the Tacheteco and Degu whale song interlude number two, which well, is more of the same?
0: I think we should just at least explain what this is. Oh, yeah, I think maybe talking about fair. it in more detail with the next one is not a bad idea. But mm-hmm. the whale song interlude is literally it's like an interlude with. Tashtigo and Dagoo, and they're just kind of hanging out and like chilling, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're 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 like having this little they're having like a very um like like they're having a lot of camaraderie, yeah. right? Like they're
4: sitting in the crow's nest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And um, I didn't put that
0: together. And it's like you know Tashdigo is like ah Dagoo, you shouldn't drink so much, and he's like ah yeah I know, but whatever, it's a party, like. That kind of, you know, they they know each other well enough that they have that type of exchange. And while they're having this conversation that's kind of about, like, ah, uh, what just happened? How do we feel about what's going on with Ahab? um There's a humpback whale song. And Tashtigo, like, knows about whale song and tells Dagu about, oh, yes, this is a humpback whale song. And, like, th- this is you know, we don't know anything about these creatures really. Um, And then there's this kind of idea of like, oh, haven't you ever wanted to just kind of escape to one of these islands and just live there? Mm -hmm. And Tashiki goes like, I don't think we can escape. There's a giant patch of plastic the size of Texas in the middle of the ocean.
2: That we sailed past because time has Uh, died.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, so Actually,
2: yeah, please, go on, Clay. I just hated that part. Fair enough!
4: I'm a big... I'm... I try not to be too old man-ish about this, but there, in a lot of adaptations recently, there's this urge to throw something like that in. I think about, I read a translation of The Resistible Rise of Arturo Wee, which is a Brecht play about the rise of Hitler that oh. they edit to oh. include Trump a lot oh. in it. And you're oh like, no. no! Of course they did! You're like, this is just like, you're like... You don't need to. The we get it. The value of this was that it was general. Yeah.
0: Also, the value of
4: this was that he wrote a play about the rise of fascism. Yeah. And and in allegory, but I think and then... it kind of draw. It kind of broke me from my quote unquote immersion, and also it's a weirdly multivalent part in that it doesn't quite make sense because for a while I thought they were talking about race. Yeah. 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 You know, they're talking about race. It's, you know, like, don't you want it? like, we're going to, you know, after this, we go back and it's the same old Rhode Island, same old net, na- right? Yeah. yeah like,
0: yeah. what if we could escape America? What, what, if,
4: if- what if we could escape America? But then it makes it about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yeah. Which sort of, you know, it's not as much of a broken thing as like the Moby and environmentalism thing, but it's. Because obviously, you know Environmentalism and white supremacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, Destroying the environment is intertwined there. But at the same time it just It's you lose these two characters are supposed to be or have been the most rooted in the world that's yeah. being created, and here they break from it. And yeah. suddenly yeah. I can't take anyone seriously.
2: Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah. I, I definitely had the reaction of like, wait, did they really just say that when I was listening to it? And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm both, I'm not glad, but I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm glad I recognized that that, you know, that, that feeling of sort of, yeah, suspension of disbelief or even like investment is sort of like Mm -hmm. jostled by that. And there's, there's some other ways that'll come up soon, like Fidala. Um, Yeah.
0: But I, I, Mm. I, what, what's really striking to me about this, this whale song interlude is that, um. I I think that it is... The idea of getting away from this, right? Um, I think that slippage that you noticed between, like, wait a minute, are we talking about racism or are we talking about, like, mm-hmm. pollution? Um, is a really, like, slick and, like, bad rhetorical move. Mm-hmm. Because, like, I mean, okay. Like, God, I'm just... Uh, I, I re-listened to the Whale Song interlude last night because I was trying to figure out where it was in this. And there's, like, this rhetorical movement from, okay, Tashigou is like, Dagu, you shouldn't drink too much. And his kind of point there is he's like, like, this is a good gig. Don't lose it, right? So he's saying, like, you want to keep this job.
1: Yeah. And Dagu mm-hmm. is like,
0: ah, yeah, survival. And then he says, have you ever thought about escaping to one of these islands just, like, living free off of fruit. And so at that point, Dagu is like, hey, have you ever considered just fucking not having a job? Like, just escaping this whole thing of American whaling that mm-hmm. we've been engaged with and just surviving some other way. And I think you're right that there's a strong implication of, like, have you ever thought of escaping America? Escaping the West? Escaping whiteness? Racism and
2: capitalism. Yes.
0: Have you ever thought of going to, you know, I mean... Obviously, this is very idealized, right? But have you ever thought of going to a place where there are no white people and there is no industry? And Tashtago's response to that is, well, this plastic patch, I don't think there is any escaping this. And that movement transforms it from we, like, people of color, people who were born in non-industrialized societies, maybe aren't super comfortable with, like, white industrial capitalism and what it's done to our lives. And then that little move turns it from that into we, humanity, aren't really comfortable with what we collectively have done to the Earth. And we feel mm-hmm. bad about it as a, as a species rather than, uh, like, it, it completely transforms the critique. Yeah, it also, it, it... Oh, sorry, go on.
3: Oh, no, yeah, sorry. It, like, it also minimizes the whole question because it's, like, it, it does establish, like, well, there is no escape from capitalism mm-hmm. right? because of these effects. So it kind of goes back to that of, like, it It, it just feels weirdly hopeless. And, again, yeah. it, it, like, reframes the question into something else that's, like, very also unfixable. And it just, it's odd because it also brings it into the present moment. Yeah. And I'm sorry. It's no, 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 no you're, it is. you're
2: totally right. And I think that, that unfixability is a big deal because rather than being, like, you know... Uh, This is a problem. Maybe we can escape. Maybe we can change something. Instead, it's like, uh, actually, I think we're just going down to the ship. And it becomes about humanity in general. We'll see later in the Fidala section, in later Whale Song bits, it becomes extinctionism. It becomes humanity Mm -hmm. seems to be on its way out. So maybe we can ensure that the, uh, the other species do okay after we're gone. Maybe that wouldn't be so bad. It's just like having actors of color say, Maybe humanity mm-hmm. deserves to die for its sins in a show that is also about, like, racism and the racial side of capital and the ways in which America is... Pre- it's like, yeah, America's gonna die and it's gonna take everyone with it, but that's okay as long as grass still grows. It's I have a lot of problems with extinctionism, like environmental doomerism yeah. in the first place, but I think that the way this musical mobilizes... Actors of color and characters of color, in order to present the idea that America, America failing, is synonymous with the world, like human civilization of many countries and many traditions failing, is. I mean, frankly, it's kind of grotesque.
4: I yeah, it's yeah, it's laundering Malloy's like it's laundering these anxieties mm-hmm. into something you know. It had had Malloy's. You know you if the white bougie playwright gets on stage and says these things yeah it's it, it's especially considering how it it feels a lot like there's a discomfort with coming to a conclusion on the what if they decided to you know what if they decided to hop on this mat this theoretical magic island
2: yeah, yeah, what if they decided to do something what if they say decided mm-hmm. to uh Rise up and protest. What if they decided to mutiny? Those aren't mm-hmm. possibilities in this story.
0: By the-, the way, the possibility of mutinying and escaping to a Pacific island oh, right, that totally happens. <laughs> fucking happens in the novel.
2: It's, it's not on the Pequod, but oh. it, there's, a, there's a whole like s- chapter that's the story of a, uh, of a sailor who leads a mutiny that is, I would say, semi-successful. It's complicated. There's a bunch of Jesus allegories. It's not something we can go into in depth, but the story of Steel Kilt is... Uh, what is ultimately a basically successful mutiny that is presented with a certain amount of sympathy. So the idea of mutiny by mistreated members Mm -hmm. of a crew is very much present. In fact, Ahab's internality when we see it includes him sort of Thinking about how do I communicate my desires and intent to the crew in a way that will, you know, move them to my electric force. The quarterdeck is supposed to be about him sort of shooting his energy into everyone else so that they will want the same vengeance he wants.
0: God, you could have done so much cool shit with that with dance, honestly. Yeah. Like, imagine if Ahab stomps once and everyone kind of, like, falls away from him. Like a yeah. fucking crop circle. You know?
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, that would be cool. Or, consider, Ahab's, like, you know, stomping on his peg as he's doing things, and everyone else starts taking up the same sort of, uh, sidedness. Oh,
0: like they move in the same way he does? Exactly.
2: His sparks, his his match lights their fires, etc. Oh, God. Anyways.
0: Yeah, but, Um. yeah, no, I, there's more in the later Whale Song interlude, so I don't feel the need to completely hash it out here, but, yeah, this is, this is such a, like, this, the moves here are, are are really bad.
2: Yeah, and it definitely... How do I put this? It reduced my expectations for the musical going forward, and it didn't reduce yeah. them enough. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um,
4: I, I'm curious about if there's anything to be said about the Albatross, because it kind of... <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't think know, so, so to be honest. Me. The Albatross
0: yeah. is the song that follows this, and uh, basically what happens in it is that there's a storm... And uh, the Pequod encounters another ship, but they cannot communicate because of the storm, pretty much.
2: It's a very minor scene (laughs) in the novel, and it just doesn't do anything here except for maybe establish the image of little fish swimming away from Ahab, which is this... Like, in, in the novel, that image is Ahab being sort of, like, sadly, like, ah, you travel with me, but now you go to someone else. Can nobody understand my, you know, my purpose? And it's, mm-hmm. eh, it's, it's one of the pathos moments for Ahab. It's not a very important one. It also doesn't have Pip in it as, at all, as far as I can remember. So the fact that they have Pip be like, bye-bye, little fishies, is purely to set up that they're going to have Pip talk about little fishies later. Yeah. That's it.
0: Yeah, I I would say, I would say that the albatross in the novel is like, I think really most of what it's doing in the novel is uh, playing with the idea of incommunicability, right? The fact that these two ships can't Mm -hmm. understand each other, it does something in a novel that is obsessed with the idea of things that cannot be spoken. Yeah, there's there's a lot of little
2: things, because the novel's such a dense book. There's a lot of little things we can find in the albatross, but I don't think the musical's really doing much of them besides the fishies thing and beyond that uh i really do think it's it's forgettable and it's not even like a fun song musically like did, did anyone else feel like this was musically earning its keep no nope. Yeah. cool cool yeah. yeah all right it was there let's let's move the fuck on
0: yeah all right the last song in part one which is kind of like a before an almost quasi act break. Yeah, um,
2: yeah.
0: Like a, a like a mini break that's not quite an intermission. Mm. Um This is a this is like Ahab's solo. Um and it's all about his like complicated lonely feelings. Um and most of it is, is pretty much straight quoted uh from the novel. hmm Um How how did this uh how did this work? How did this come across for you in in the show? Did it feel like a nice like kind of act finale at all?
3: Uh um Clay, I don't know how much you remember for this. I'm like struggling to remember this cuz I, I remember not... it it f- it flowed a lot like pretty much straight from the Albatross and mm-hmm. so it felt like just one song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
4: It's not a very it wasn't I think re-listening to it, I'm, I'm. It's not a very memorable song.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, yeah. Ahab, Ahab. I'll say the actor playing him is best when he's doing more of the fire and brimstone mm-hmm. of Ahab. Yeah, the bombastic. He's not very. Mm-hmm. He's not bad, but it's just, you know, I don't think he was cast for his like quiet,
2: contemplative,
4: quiet, contemplative work and. It's not bad, but it also – it's also one of the – the musical has too many times where it's just one person on stage singing. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, makes So sense. it like,
3: takes away from the importance of someone being on stage alone. Yeah. Like, yeah that which makes isn't sense. Dis-
4: like, yeah, it's like, you know, a lot of – there's a lot of soliloquies, a lot of these moments, but, you know, one of them was – grad student Ishmael <laughs> fully uh, eliding the whole I'm going to kill myself thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, And so this, it, it works, but it's also admittedly none of it, the line, it doesn't work very well musically in my yeah, opinion, because yeah. it's all, you know, it's all quotes it's and then it doesn't.
2: very, it's very fan servicey as well. It's combining some moments of Ahab mm-hmm. that are very memorable from the novel.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I uh, know the pipe thing is given a big oomph to it, but I didn't really notice his pipe before then. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, same, same. I, I think the, thing... the pipe
4: is introduced a couple stanzas earlier, yeah. and oh. then
0: <laughs> yeah, the the thing about the pipe is that I think it plays a lot better in the nineteenth century when smoking is just completely normal. You yeah. can just kind of assume mm-hmm. as a default that basically every character on the Pequod smokes at some point, right? Yeah. The the, the idea mm-hmm. of... Smoke, Stubb
2: smokes a lot.
0: Yeah, like, the, S- Stubb is noted out for, like, smoking a lot, but, like, I don't think there's any sense that being a non-smoker <laughs> is a thing, right? Yeah. And so when mm-hmm. Ahab throws away the pipe, it's almost like he's fasting, right? Yeah,
2: he's tossing mm-hmm. aside a source of, like, pleasure and enjoyment that is... Pretty universal to the uh, people on the Pequod. The crew, you know, they smoke. We know that uh, Queequeg smokes. From his introduction with Ishmael's, the two of them sharing good smoke in bed before going to sleep. There's very much the sense that it's just like a simple, harmless uh, indulgence that makes you feel better. And, you know, that's not really the way we think about smoking these days, but... um... (laughs)
0: Yeah, and so like, Ahab throwing aside the pipe is like the sense where he's like, Yeah, I can't experience any human pleasure anymore. Because I'm so consumed with revenge.
2: Yeah, and um. similarly, he's supposed to be seeing this beautiful sunset and reacting to it with, like, this... It delights it, it not me. This, you know, I am subtly damned in the midst of paradise that I can't stop thinking about my revenge for a second. That my utter purposefulness also means that I'm completely impervious to joy and, like, enjoyment. And, you know, I think that the fact that this... Song isn't really a song, because it's just quotations from the book, and the way in which it's just trying to line up a bunch of, like, bits of Ahab's pathos. It also follows him, like, kind of cackling in the version, the bootleg, um, over, like, uh, how he has, you know, managed to get all the men on his side. He does, like, think about this various Mm -hmm. times, but it's, for me, I'm gonna sort of put something forward here that really struck me in this song, and maybe this was me reading too much into it, but... This song felt like it was trying to establish, or at least the lead up to it, it, was trying to establish that Ahab's kind of sinister. He's not just a, like, emotionally meaningful and reverent figure, but he's kind of deceptive, that he's tricky. And that, and I I don't think it worked super well at that, if that was what it was trying to do. If it wasn't trying to do it, it certainly gave me that impression. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it it really isn't much of a song. I think that if... I like that point about if we'd had fewer soliloquies already, if we'd had less just single person on the quote-unquote deck of the stage, then Ahab coming out alone oh, you know what they could have done? Have Ahab very slowly walk across the deck with the clonk, clonk, clonk to get to the side, like, the rail over the audience, like, maybe puff the pipe in silence a few times so it's very visible and clear, and then sort of start Mm -hmm. talking about it. And frankly, you could have done this as a spoken soliloquy. Having Ahab sing less and speak more could have been very effective.
4: Yeah. I I have one thought on that, actually, Mm -hmm. which is I think... It frustrates me because this musical obviously breaks with the sort of everything has to be sung thing, which is fine. Many musicals do that, but when you do that, you have to understand that now you're no longer in the precise language of, like... You you know, you have to come up with a new reason Mm -hmm. why certain things are sung and certain are not. Yeah. Rather than the kind of basic, like... The basic singing is... Or rather than the basic, like, if everything is sung, then...
2: Obviously it's sung.
4: Obviously, obviously everything is sung, and obviously, like, your crescent, crescendos in the music to, are tied to emotions. Mm. Or, like, to, like, narrative crescendo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where you run into the Disney thing, or the, like, musicals with spoken thing, which is known as, you know, like, when your feelings become too much... To speak you sing and then when they become too much to sing you dance mm, I've that's heard that like one. the movie musical thing the right?
3: howard ashman sort of mentality yeah
4: mm-hmm. that's the that's that and here we don't even do that because you know and obviously that wouldn't quite work here but other music you have to have a paradigm there mm-hmm. which is sometimes yeah. you know i'm thinking about other musicals where sometimes singing is desperation mm-hmm. yeah like and you you start singing when you're truly desperate. That's a fairly recent, uh, you know, like that's a big thing in. I'm thinking Hades Town. Oh yeah, oh, just singing, mm-hmm. right like
0: yeah. We're, we're um, here. We're Hades Town herds actually. Yeah, I really
2: like Hades.
4: Oh yeah, I am a big fan of Hades Town. Yeah, yeah. It's a good musical. It's <laughs> a good it's musical. Re- it's really good. And he- and it's a good there. adaptation. It tells you why you should care about this version
2: of Orpheus and Eurydice.
3: Yes, <laughs> exactly. Even
2: in Hades Town. As I've heard a bit of the Broadway cast album, I didn't love the bringing environmentalism in super overtly when the original no, had yeah. so much uh, political and like symbolic meaning without having to do any of that because its aesthetic and its idea of how things work was so clear. But that's compared to... <laughs> this musical, that's nothing. Yeah, that's we'll fucking nothing.
3: And because yeah. and it's like, if, if your whole musical is sung, then you kind of establish singing as your status quo. Yeah. So then when you break from that, then that's important. Mm-hmm. Like, usually it's the moment when you slow down. Like, I'm thinking of... Uh, so in Phantom of the Opera, when Raoul and Christine sort of meet after the show, they're sort of like it's a little bit spoken. They have a little bit of that in between the song. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, cause I know we're going to bring up Hamilton at some point. So I'm just kind of keeping yep, that yep. in the conversation. One of the few moments when it's just like spoken is when his son, Philip dies. Yeah. And that's, that's why it's not in the cast recording. Yeah, yeah. Cause that's not a song. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No the 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 question of like why is this sung? Why is this spoken? I don't feel like this musical has a particular answer to that.
2: I certainly don't have an answer to it. I I wasn't thinking in those terms, and now I'm definitely going to be trying to keep that in mind as we mm-hmm. go further. But yeah, I I pride myself on being relatively good at pattern recognition. I got nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> there, I'm I've been since I mentioned that trying to find some answer. And, <laughs> The closest thing I can do is I, f- I feel like it likes putting Melville's words to music. That's not enough for me. Yeah,
2: yeah. especially when Melville's mm. words to music is failing so very badly yeah. as a paradigm.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah, and I think like Dave Malloy doesn't know this, which is why he <laughs> no. keeps doing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, and, and like I feel like he'll defend it as like a stylistic choice. Like, well, you'll love it or you'll hate it, but it just it doesn't work musically yeah. like it's it's not because it's pretentious it's not because it's too advanced for most audiences it just it's just not working yeah and
2: it's this wasn't written as music if you were like carefully finding sections for Moby Dick that could be put to something like a meter if you were carefully culling out the lines so that you could like like um like blackout poetry where you find the bits yeah. within this that fit within this new structure you can make something new out of it that would be a fascinating project especially with something as wordy and elaborate as Moby Dick that's not what we've got here we just have the lines
0: and the thing is Mm -hmm. like you can have like a wordy musical right Mm -hmm. where the language is is not following like a super uh kind of obvious like uh, I guess songwriting structure and that was exciting and and innovative when Sondheim started doing it, in what, like, the 70s? I was about to say,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: was about saying, Sondheim, let's Sondheim write this. Sondheim does it well. I'm just, like, depressing. Sondheim's Moby Dick would be... I'd be so interested in that. Wow. But... <laughs> I
2: mean, look, we got we got some Orson Welles' Moby Dick in the past.
1: Orson Welles
0: that... had more confidence in rewriting Melville's language. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Remember, because... There's a there's a play which was written, directed and starred in by Orson Welles called Moby Dick Rehearsed which is about a theater company who are going to put on a production of Moby Dick but they're like they're kind of they're not sure if they're going to do it. They're like doing a kind of practice. It's,
2: it's a metafictional Moby Dick that's all about can you produce Moby Dick now and in this form and it's good.
0: And one of the that's things so th- fascinating. One of the things that makes Sorry. it good is that he rewrites Melville's lines into blank verse. So he makes them rhythmic. Yeah. In a way yeah. that functions on stage. He makes them
2: fucking Shakespeare. Like that's that's the style mm-hmm. he's going for. And he, he changes the ending of the book, he changes a bunch of things, and yet it as a both a version of Moby Dick and as a meditation on how one might attempt to make Moby Dick into a theatrical performance, it's I mean, it's Orson Welles, guys. <laughs> but Yeah, uh, Orson oh, yeah, This is... we. I got a copy out of the library, but it's clearly not widely available. Uh, we did have it as a major thing in an episode previously, but um, it's it's a really interesting little uh, little text. Uh, we had a great time with it, but obviously we didn't get to see it performed.
0: Yeah, it is listed. Um, there's like a... I think we kind of alluded to this, but to be clear, we have uh, photos of the playbill from this show, and in that playbill there's from a... The,
2: from, not from... Orson Welles' show from Malloy's show.
0: From Malloy's show. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole list of, like, things that were influences, and I do not believe that list, even a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And and Moby Dick Rehearsed is on that list, and it's just like, I don't think you did... Because Moby Dick Rehearsed is all about, could you possibly make Moby Dick as a stage play? And I would say, like, it's not clear about its conclusions, but the conclusion that it seems to come to is... Perhaps, and if you did, it would have to be incredibly abstract. You could not put the whale on stage in any way. You would have to make it purely something in the audience's mind. And even then, at the end of Moby Dick Rehearsed, it's like, are we going to produce this play? And the, like, director... The Orson
2: Welles character. Who has
0: also been starring as Ahab, obviously, he's just like, take down the curtain. He doesn't say we're gonna produce this, or we're not gonna produce this, it's just... It's
2: left to the audience to decide.
0: Yeah, it's just, we're done now. Um, And it's so funny to me that Orson Welles was like, can you produce Moby Dick on stage? Let me think about this. Let me turn it around in my mind. Let me make a piece of art about it. I still can't make up my mind. I made a Moby Dick stage show, and I still don't know if you can produce Moby Dick on stage. And Dave Malloy was like, watch me! (laughs) <laughs> he's
3: like i can do it better than orson Welles.
2: <laughs> i mean yeah that's the that's sort of implicit wow also it bothers oh, me speaking of that list of inspirations that rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead was listed as a text inspiration oh yeah just looking at that uh-huh. why is it a text um, and not
0: a play does he not know someone should tell <laughs>
2: me <him. laughs> uh, oh, it
4: bothers me that that's here uh. <laughs>
0: yeah? No, there's so many things that are listed as influences where I do not believe it was an influence, and there are other things that are that are listed as influences where I'm like, yeah, this was an influence, but it should not have been.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hey, this is Mark from a- another time, uh, because we ended up, due to how things worked out, we ended up recording just one plug to put across all four uh, Moby Dick A Musical Reckoning episodes. So, um... I have Clay and Danny with me here right now. Um Danny, do you have anything uh that you would like to plug? Oh my god, I do have things I'd like to plug.
3: Uh, so I guess most of the stuff that I do is uh audio dramas, uh mostly with Clay, kind of exclusively with Clay. So um we um you can kind of follow us and see sort of what we're doing in that sphere at Wasteland Radio Productions on Instagram. There's nothing. Uh, there's not a lot of stuff there yet, but it does link to our uh, sort of completed audio drama project called "The Last Show" at Last Show Podcast on Instagram, and it's a funky audio drama about a college radio show that survives the end of the world, and you know, there's a fun cult of English majors and also a terrifying robot god. A lot of very exciting times. Uh, we we made it with our friends. It was our first audio drama. Really fun. I I recommend you guys uh, check it out if you like. You know post-apocalypses and, you know, light elements of cosmic horror with some comedy in between. Um, it was a very fun time. And um, if you want to sort of our most recent project or the one that we're currently developing is called uh, Another Man's Poison with Carver Levine. Uh, and I guess it's food horror, Clay. <laughs> I don't know how you, you, you have like this vision for how do you want to define it to, to people, to listeners.
4: Another Man's Poison with Carver Levine is a culinary horror podcast where you follow food journalist Carver Levine and his trusty producer (laughs) as they travel across the nation and eat at the United States' most dangerous restaurants.
3: Yeah. And it's got, like, you know, it, it goes from, like, dangerous to weird to almost fantastical. It's got... It's kind of all over that spectrum. We're very excited for it. We haven't really done anything like this. Uh, so as soon as we start, you know, publishing more things about it, you will see it at Wasteland Radio Productions on Instagram. So please follow us so you can kind of follow along with uh, our progress with that. If you want to follow me personally, I am on Twitter at BerserkerDandan, and, um... That's a B-E-R-S-E-K-E-R-D-A-N-D-A-N. And Wait, yeah, is I that, is mm- that Berserker with no second R? S-E-K? Uh, no, that is with another R. I can't spell. I can't look at things and spell them. It's okay. It's spelled my
0: Berserker like the word Berserker. Go berserker Google like berserker.
3: the word. Google that word and you'll be able to find me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you also found out that I can't spell, so now that's out in the world. Uh, but you can follow me there. And uh, I... I just do stuff on Twitter, I guess. But but uh oh and if you I also composed the music for the last show, so if you want to kind of look at my composing endeavors for that, you can see my work at soundcloud.com slash last show podcast. And uh yeah, you can just listen to the stuff I make there.
0: Awesome. Um and uh Clay, did you have anything specific that you also wanted to mention?
4: You can find me on Twitter at clubyc C-L-O-O-B-Y, XIX, Klubi 19, but with Roman numerals, at twitter.com. There is where I announce most of my projects. And a lot of my projects are also found because I write a lot of tabletop role playing game supplements and games. It can be found at klubi.itch.io. Um, pick awesome. up, chief among them, I, ha- I wrote a supplement for J Dragon's Wander Home about the ocean and big mythopoetic monsters on the ocean.
3: Which I illustrated. Damn.
1: Yes.
0: I I couldn't think of anyone who might listen to our Moby Dick podcast who might be interested in that. <laughs> um, or in culinary horror, honestly. God, there's a lot of culinary horror in Moby Dick. Anyway. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I really hope uh, our listeners will go uh, check both of your stuff out um, because I think it's really cool. And uh, like I was just saying, I think there might be some overlaps in interest. Uh, And you can actually also find um, my other podcast, um, Ars Arcanum, which is a podcast about uh, Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere novels. Um, And also, uh, to some extent, just about science fiction and fantasy and and just novels, books in general. Um, You can find that on the Export Audio uh, Podcast Network. Um, you can find that podcast specifically at, uh, ars hyphen arcanum, A-R-S hyphen A-R-C-A-N-U-M dot, uh, what is it, pinecast I think that's correct. Um, but probably actually an easier way to find, uh, everything on the Export Audio Network is if you go to their Patreon, which you can find at exportaud.io. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Char Asna Um. So uh, thank you to both so much again for being on these episodes, and I uh, hope uh, everyone checks their stuff out.
2: There's there's one other thing which is, and uh, this this I, I will insist on is so we have a nor- the way we end the podcast normally is a line that we've seen now in the musical. You've seen it, but it's, it's in the book. It's uh, what tune do you sing to, man? One of us says, and the other responds with a dead whale or a stoveboat. And I would. Ben love is, it.
0: You consistently mess this up. It is, what tune do you pull to, men? Uh,
2: fine, fine. Yes. What tune do you pull to, men? The basic, the actual thing we like is that the other person responds with a dead whale or a stove boat. And I would love to try and do that with three people responding. <laughs> if you'd be up Amazing. for it. I love it. Yes. Okay.
0: Oh, oh yeah. Do you want to?
2: Uh, since you know it better, you should clearly do the call.
0: <laughs> All right. Everyone ready then? Yes. Yes. All right. What tune is it you pull to, man? A, a dead, dead whale, 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 or a stove
2: or boat. Or a stove boat. <laughs> I still think that's better than the musical.
0: Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Ship it. All right.